are now listening to This broadcast has been hijacked by V. Andrew Bello. This is the Awakened Soul. May God have mercy upon you. Alright folks, so you heard at the top of the show, I'm the Andrew Bello. I'm stepping in for CEO Hayes this week for a, a couple of reasons. A, uh, he's he's got some stuff going on. Real life happens and he wasn't able to put out an episode for you folks this week, although he did put out two for you last week, so he could have just as easily gone ahead and said, hey... We're going to skip a week, but the Awakened Soul podcast is picking up steam and where it's, you know, it's in its early stages and we wanted to make sure that we got some content out to you. I say we, cause I'm obviously hosting the show this week, but this is, you know, from the mind of CEO Hayes and I'm just ever so honored that he asked me to fill in for him. And I hope if you've been listening thus far, maybe you're not even a particularly large fan of myself as I've been on here a few times. Uh, just, you know, trust in CEO. He put me on here for a reason. I'm going to cover a variety of topics. And as you guys know, I am the Trump supporter. So, so to speak of, of Trump supporters, I guess, you know, I just kind of get pulled in from all directions in my personal life on podcasts uh, to kind of speak for I don't know, the general Trump population. I went through a myriad of topics to discuss with you guys this week, and I pulled out as many of Trump ones like as out of the pile as possible. So I will discuss the man over courses of time, but if you're expecting this to be an hour-long episode about me talking about Donald Trump, I assure you that will not be the case. Um, but I am the Andrew Bello. I'm generally of the Wrestling World Podcast Network, so be sure to check out, if you're a wrestling fan, all of our shows on... Uh, the WWPN.com, and we're also iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, this, that, and the other thing. Just search Wrestling World Podcast Network. I have a lot to talk to you guys about this week, and I'm going to kind of just sprinkle my comments in throughout the course of the night. I do have a Cypher segment featuring Gerald Cooper, who's been on the show before. We're going to talk about some good old-fashioned rock and roll, and it's just its state right now in the world of music and where it came from and you know where it ends up. So keep an ear out for that. Also... Uh, Colin Wysong, he's also been on the show before. He came on uh, to talk about a little bit of South Park with me. So South Park season 21 just started last week. The episode has now aired and it's just spectacular. Go check it out. Uh, Touches on some topical stuff and, you know, gets, you know, a little edgy about it and also is just hysterical. It's South Park. Like if if you're not into it already, honestly, I don't know that you're going to be, but if you are like and maybe you've been somebody who's been kind of tuned off for several seasons. Maybe maybe a couple of the last few seasons were like a little much for you. This episode was really good as somebody who's liked all of their stuff and it wasn't incredibly political or incredibly offensive. It, it told a really good, funny story with, you know, several characters that you're probably familiar with. Anyway, so check out South Park and check out Colin talking about it with me here on the Awakened Soul podcast. It's so hard for me to not say the names of the other podcasts that I'm on generally. This is this is a cool and new experience, so thank you for staying tuned. Uh, a couple things I wanted to talk about, more or less right out the gate. One of my favorite topics, 
free speech. Um, I'm for it. I'm a big proponent of it. I think there should be minimal limitations to it. And uh, th there's very little anybody's going to ever be able to do to convince me otherwise. It's something I'm as passionate about as anything, realistically. So a couple issues going on with free speech uh, that occurred over the course of the last week, really. We have Jamel Hill of ESPN tweeting about Donald Trump being a white supremacist and surrounding himself with white supremacists. Um, there's been a lot of controversy about all this. There's even been the, the White House has even, I believe, spoken about it. At least I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders addressed it in a press briefing. But I'm not one of these people that as much as I think somebody in the public eye should think twice before hitting send on a tweet like that, I don't think, I don't think she should be fired over it. What I like to think does and will happen in these types of situations, and this is my worldview and this is how I hope it all works out because I believe very much in the things that I believe in, one of which being free speech, the other which being the free market in, in the capitalist system. What should and ultimately will happen here with ESPN and with Jamel Hill is that ESPN's ratings will continue to nosedive because they continue to try to be a political forum when all we just want to see is dunk highlights and the occasional mascot fall on his face and the scores for the baseball games this like that's that's what you tune into ESPN for I want if I want to hear about political and cultural and social issues there's way better platforms for that and ESPN has, has been unable to recognize that and the fact that they didn't suspend or fire Jamel Hill kind of tells you that they think that this is okay if not encouraged, in a way. And here's why. I mean, there was a series of firings that occurred within the last six months to a year, and a majority of the people that were fired were all conservative-leaning politically. Um, probably not all of them. I'm sure Disney's smart enough to cover their tracks on stuff like that. But, you know, Kurt Schilling and Mike Ditka are people that played their sport and, and coached their sport in Ditka's situation. He was a player as well. He was a great tight end. Um, but, uh, you know, have these players and coaches and people who have actual valid opinions about the sport to fire them because of their political views. But then we'll keep Jamel Hill on, who's I'm sure she knows her shit. As a matter of fact, I know she knows her shit because I watched some of her shows and I'll, I'm not going to pretend that I didn't think she was a good analyst. I think she is. But if you're going to you're going to fire ex-athletes that have a certain level of expertise that she'll just never be able to match, at least in a particular part of what they do, and they're just going to dismiss them because of what are presumably her, their political beliefs. Because why would you get rid of Kurt Schilling otherwise? Like, who's Kurt Schilling offending? He's got the bloody sock incident. Everyone loves Kurt Schilling. Like, everyone respects that guy, um, or at least to my knowledge. If you don't, and there's some shit I need to know about Kurt Schilling, like, let me know. Uh, and you could do that on Twitter at the Andrew Bello or at WWPN Bello and Bello, by the way, B E L L O. Anyway, um, so I don't think Jamel Hill should be fired. And there's a lot of people on the right, like screaming about, like, why is it she been fired and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, I don't think she should be fired for what she said. I just think ultimately, if she keeps doing things like this, that the free market will work itself out and the ratings will nosedive and they'll either have to fire her or they'll all have to get. Uh, altogether have to come up with a new situation or a new way of handling these types of issues, or maybe, hey, just talk about sports like you're supposed to, and then the ratings will go back up, and then Jamel Hill can stay. You know, like if that, 
I don't know. I just think ultimately, at the end of the day, this will all work itself out to where people like Jamel Hill and Stephen Colbert and Ted Nugent and Kid Rock, like these people don't need to be fired or, you know, boycott. Oh, I guess they would be boycotted, but just sort of like an, in a natural way, as opposed to somebody coming out and being like, let's bo boycott all the Ted Nugent's music because he's a racist. Like, if we're going to start measuring people with talent on a level of, like, who they are and what they are, like, we're going to find very few talented people lying around. There's just some terrible people out there, and a lot of them happen to be in sports and in Hollywood, and they're talented, and we kind of all just overlook certain things. Um, I believe when I'll, I'll, I'll talk, uh, I, I talked in, I had a conversation with Gerald Cooper recently about, like, people who still will listen to and support R. Kelly, like, knowing damn well what he did. So, you know, and, and, you know, there's all over the place. Like I said, Ted Nugent's another example uh, for a right wing person on, on that end of the spectrum. But it's just, I don't know, man. Like it's, it, it's a lot to do with nothing. Don't yell fire in a crowded theater. And then other than that, just say whatever the fuck you want. As long as it's not like in a harassing way. If you, if I approach you and I say something and you say, please, like, you know, you don't have to, please stop bothering me or whatever the case may be. And I go over across in a line, that's harassment. If I try to incite violence against you um, by calling to arms a group of people and say, hey, you know, like CEO Hayes missed this episode of, of the Awakened Soul. Let's go ahead and, you know, let's go march on his doorstep and, and you know, whatever the case may be, that's that's inciting violence like that's a crime in and of itself if what you are saying is not a crime it should not be illegal so you know and, and there's very little there's very few things that fall into those categories so jamel hill tweet what you want to tweet it'll all work itself out maybe i'm wrong like maybe she'll now gain some sort of crazy cred and become like the biggest thing in the history of sports journalism it's possible like maybe this was her moment I don't think it will be. I think she'll probably look back on it and be like, shit, I should have thought before I hit send. Have those thoughts. Like, you're a public figure, though. If you don't want lashback, don't put it out there. So, uh, free speech, keeping along those lines. Ben Shapiro, uh, you know, somebody I've listened to a lot and have mentioned on the podcast, and I believe CEO Hayes is, is, is now and, and has continued to listen to his podcast or at least keep up on the Daily Wire or whatever. Um, ben Shapiro spoke at Berkeley recently, and there was, you know, another free speech thing. Berkeley has had its issues with conservative-minded speakers going in there and Antifa causing a riot about it. And, I mean, I saw the scene as Shapiro was going in there, and basically, here's... Here's what's happening in Berkeley. Ben Shapiro is like the most non-threatening human being that's ever existed. He's like a five foot nine, hundred thirty-five pound soaking wet dude. He's not by any means like a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi. He's an Orthodox Jew. He's quite proud of it. He, you know, like it's he. He's not somebody who's. If you listen to him speak for more than five minutes about any given policy that you might think has some sort of base in race or hate or bigotry or identity politics is something he just like speaks vehemently against on a regular basis. Um, to, to have him going to a college campus just to speak and the type of reaction you get is they had to put up like little cement barriers. They canceled classes. Businesses were closing down early in the town. Bank of America boarded up its ATMs, and there were a litany of posters and, I guess, like, chalk graffiti 
all over the campus saying like we don't want your racist bullshit take your hate speech elsewhere like ah and you got a group of people there as well protesters obviously you know antifa type folk talking about speech is violence and violence is speech or something like they're trying to conflate to violence and speech in such a way that it makes it okay for them to strike first and that's the craziest part of all of this and like yes i obviously have my biases on this but if somebody for the love of god can explain this to me in a reasonable way in which the antifa people are not the very antithesis of what they claim to be against these are people who claim to be against fascism fascism the idea that you basically force an ideology and a, and, and and thought and you know a way of life and a culture upon people using violence are not the ones in fact using those very tactics like it's just they are the absolute antithesis of what they claim to be they are fascists and to try to say that my speech or ben shapiro's speech or your speech or ceo hayes's speech is a violent act and needs to be met with physical violence that's a problem and while i might want to agree with them on certain subjects like when i'm watching richard spencer who in a lot of cases gets tied in with people on the right in general the fucking neo-nazi scumbag that this guy is like yeah i want to punch him in the face too and i thought it was really funny when i watched that video but at the of people and if you haven't watched it please go watch it like somebody just walked up to richard spencer on the street and punched him in the face that guy should be prosecuted but that doesn't mean i can't think it's funny you know so at the end of the day i want to agree with them in very certain aspects of certain conversations or whatever the case may be but the law is the law and if you and i can determine that what person c is saying is violent and we can now attack them like, what stops everybody from always being offended by what everyone else says, and we just turn into a complete anarchy of, he said, and I hit, or she said, and I hit, or whatever the case may be, and now you're you're taking freedom of speech and just throwing it out the window by saying that, like, yes, these people have the right to say whatever they want, but these people have the right to punch them in the face. No, these people have the right to say whatever they want back. The problem is, in this particular case, it's my belief that the people that are wanting to initiate with violence want to do so because they don't have an intellectual argument to present. They think they live in some sort of fascist state where they're allowed to dress in black, show up with weapons, and essentially beat up protesters, and they've been getting away with it for months, if not years, up until basically this weekend. And even then, there was a few incidences at uh, in incidents at Berkeley. So, you know, there's, it, you just can't, I can't wrap my head around it. So if anybody can, could, by any means, reach out to me and give me some sort of sympathy or, or empathy for these Antifa folk, like, I would love to be enlightened on this, because if, if I'm missing something, I feel like I'm missing a lot. So let me know, at WWP and Bello, or at the Andrew Bello, again, on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, that's more or less it. I don't want to bring everything down too much. There was one more article that CEO Hayes 
suggested I open with because I sent it to him and he thought it was about as funny as I thought it was. Uh, and it was an article, strangely enough, in Glamour magazine. Now, this was sent to me or I saw it on Reddit or whatever the case may be. That it is a Glamour magazine article on their website. You could search it right now by a, I believe, a Miss Corey Lane, K-O-R-E-Y-L-A-N-E, written on September 8th, 2017. The title, Help, I Can't Stop Hooking Up with Trump Supporters. So she goes on to write this lengthy article about when people ask what her worst sexual experiences are, she says... Um, you know, she often cites these experiences because, you know, one moment she's just at a bar arguing with a guy about their political differences. And the next morning she wakes up and she's looking at a wall that's got like a don't tread on me flag and a Pepe sticker and a Ronald Reagan oil painting. And she just ha like she can't wrap her head around how this keeps happening. Um, she she also says it's not necessarily this is probably my favorite part of the article is that I say it was the worst in quotes, not because the sex was bad, but because, well, see the above and referencing the fact that the person was a Trump supporter. So in her random sexual ex escapades, it's still somehow more important to her that she have an ideological equivalence with the with the person that she's sharing her or I guess his bed with on any given night when clearly the encounter was entirely about physicality it's just funny to me that she feels so guilty in some weird way for sleeping with people that oppose her politically that she wrote an article about it put her name to it i'm sorry folks like i i can't help but laugh about this i honestly if somebody from like if ben shapiro wrote an article about this going the other way i think it's just as ridiculous it's it's people what happened to opposites attract like at the end of the day you want somebody who's the yin to your yang it's not a yang yang or a yin yin it's a yin yang like you need to have some certain differences one of which being male and one of which being female has normally been the biological way of going about it but we've seen other situations where that works out just fine um you know i guess there's always a roundabout way of going towards the ultimate goal of finding synergy with another human being and continuing forward and into the abyss and we'll get into how much any of that means a little bit later on the show as i'm going to talk about a particular actor who either has lost his mind or is woke as fuck so you can imagine which segment i'll be talking about that in um but this woman is just in has some sort of sick guilt about simply sleeping with a Trump supporter. And it's like, I wouldn't have any guilt about sleeping with somebody who voted for Hillary. I don't even know that that would even cross my mind. Frankly, I, I assume most girls I meet did vote for Hillary. So it's like, how weird would that, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know a ton of conservative millennial aged or, or I guess whatever the generation in between um, is, you know, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm like 30 years old. I feel like most women my age voted for Hillary. They wanted to see a female president. I, 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 all of the women that I've spoken to about it, other than, you know, like my mom and my sister, like the, these are the people that I know that have definitely voted for Hillary. There's uh, definitely voted for, for Trump or didn't vote at all. Or I know their stance. So when I approach a girl in public, I assume she probably slept, with, you know, <laughs> slept with Hillary Clinton. No, maybe Bill. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so I, I just thought that article was hysterical. I hope you guys could find it as hysterical as I did, although probably not. Uh, but this is the Awakened Soul Podcast. We're going to go roll right into my conversation with uh, with Joe Cooper about rock and roll. It's the Cypher segment. I'm the Andrew Bello, your makeshift host. And by the way, 
all in any of my thoughts that you may hear are not necessarily representative of the thoughts of the Awakened Soul brand slash podcast. Let me just get that out there now. I don't want CEO getting any sort of hate mail about this. God knows I've get them enough. And the, wow, there was one this week. But oh, anyway, uh, yeah, this is the Awakened Soul. Stay tuned for the Cypher segment with Gerald L. Cooper. So we're back. We're here with the Cypher segment for this week. I am as as, as much as a hip-hop head as I have been over periods of time in my life, and I know that that's a lot of what has uh, been covered here in the past as far as music goes. I wanted to branch out a little bit here, taking over the show, trying to give it a little bit of my own flavor. Rock and roll is something that is almost inherent in me. It's just something that I've always liked. The music, obviously, uh, some of the front men, the, just the songs, just the overall culture. It's just been something I've always just been completely fascinated with so uh, i brought on another familiar voice you guys may remember gerald cooper from a previous segment or two here on the awakened soul gerald what's going on man not too much man how you doing doing just fine uh happy to talk a little bit of rock and roll and especially with you i mean you're generally very well versed in just about any subject but i know this is something that's fairly near and dear to your heart as well so i uh, definitely wanted to bring you on and get your, some of your thoughts about i guess more the state of rock and roll overall but before we get into that Let's get into some, uh, just to give a little background, everybody, a little bit of some of your favorites as far as bands, songs, albums, and, and specifically front men, because that's something that I'm, I'm a big fan of in particular when it comes to the rock and roll scene. Well, front men, you can never go wrong with your, uh, your Axel Roses, your David Lee Ross. Um, I'm a, and this is going to come up again, I'm a huge Queens of the Stone Age fan, yeah. so Josh Homme's that's that's my guy um who else have we got we got lane stanley we got uh, i mean now we're gonna start getting the guys who are just no longer here um yeah unfortunately <laughs> yeah. there's a few of those yeah yeah we we lost chris cornell um uh, a couple of years ago oh my goodness i'm flaking on his name um stone temple pilots uh, oh scott wyland thank you scott wyland who who was awesome i it was stp was one of those deals i didn't realize how big a fan i was of their music until one day I was going through my my MP3s and it's like oh shit I've got every album <laughs> that they've ever made you know and it, there aren't too many um, too many bands I can I can say that about yeah uh, what else um, bands bands I'm um, again Queens but Queens is such a genre bending um, band especially over the last couple albums they they barely qualify as as rock they do um they do so much yeah i guess that's a little bit of what we'll we'll get into at some point is sort of just the current state of rock and roll consists of a lot of bands that you can almost describe that same way not so much 
the traditional rock and roll uh, coming out of like you know obviously the blues and and into you know things like the like the Beatles and Zeppelin and all that kind of stuff. But right. it's it's very far detached at this point. But it's still in some sense rock and roll. I think part of rock's problem is the subgenres. You know, it's like um, it's like identity politics. You know, everybody's you're not rock if you're not this almost uh, back to um, what, what was the thing where um, uh, Hole's lead singer, man, my, my brain's gone oh, yeah, today. Courtney Love. Love, where she, you know, puts her foot in her mouth every time, every other time she speaks. But she decides that um, Bruce Springsteen isn't rock because um, saxophone is included in like that's that's not the case at all. You know, that's um, rock is, is is what it is. And, and there's so many little sort of factions that they can't come together and almost even just enjoy each other's stuff. Um, not not so much now. It seems like everybody listens to everything now. Um, everybody's kind of pretty gracious about what everybody else is doing. But um, it, it, it just it seems like there's it's so fragmented as a um, as an art form that you know there's not one thing that anybody can um can get behind and get galvanized by yeah there's sort of been almost these generational kind of evolutions of rock if you will like i said kind of going back to when it was coming out of blues and first becoming a thing um obviously like your elvises your jerry lee lewis's going into the beatles going into zeppelin and then you know just a million iterations in between. Obviously, the 80s had the hair metal and the glam rock, and 90s right. had the grunge rock. A uh, bit of pop punk made its way into the mainstream there. I like to more kind of focus it on post-punk. I, I don't know, something about the pop punk thing always bothered me, and that's really one of my bigger genres, like the, I don't know, the, the Blink-182s up, up to, I guess, like brand new and bands of the like. Like, that that really is where mm-hmm. I zoned in on, on rock and roll, like, full-time, and I, that was something I was covering when I was in bands and all that sort of stuff. I was a singer in high school and, and, and a little bit in college. Oh, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not getting not getting any <laughs> any uh, audio samples from me on here, at least not today, but maybe one day. I don't know. Uh, I'll dig out the old recordings, and I'll let CEO... Um, make fun of me on the air about it. um, Yeah, so, I mean, there's just been so many generational kind of evolutions. I don't really know what to describe this modern one as. Frankly, I mean, rock music is kind of few and far between. Uh, Even when you look at, like, the Grammys every year for the nominee for rock bands or metal bands and all that kind of stuff, it's a lot of the same bands that have been nominated for the last 10 years. years. Yeah, Yeah. Foo Fighters, U2, uh, you know, just like random bands that just won't go away. Not that I'm begging for them to. I want more like them, rather. You know, Imagine Dragons is only so rock and roll-y to me, Uh, but that that seems to be what the modern depiction of it is is gearing towards. Um, I I don't know, man. When you you gave me the the topic... um, I really think, and I'm, I'm going to just switch up a little bit. I, I think the 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 so-called definite and, and rock's not dead. It's 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 just not the it's just not the voice of the youth, and and that's and that's what it is. Hip hop is is the voice of the youth, and it and it has been for a long time. And I think we got into that stage, and you, you're probably better with timelines than I am, but I'm I'm almost certain of this. Um, Grunge and hip hop were running neck and neck as far as the, the the popular musical genres, and grunge sort of 
you you can say it died out because of the time you know it was it it just did what it did and it it um it kind of disappeared and i'm sure there's a their band somewhere that would qualify themselves as grunge um but or or when cobain died that sort of was the moratorium on the 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 genre subgenre however you want to call it and hip-hop became the um the, the dominant art form. I, again, I don't, I don't think it's dead because there, there are some good bands out there. Just, um, I just got hooked up with a guy who's in a kind of underground stuff and, and I'm, and I'm learning some new things. Uh, truck fighters is actually pretty good. And, um, Mastodon, which has been around forever. I'm, I'm just kind of really just yeah. learning about them. Um, and it, there's a lot of, it's a lot of crazy little stuff out there. Um, again, I, I think I think something needs to, in order to revive rock as as dominant, so to speak, you're we're, we're going to have to experience a, a zeitgeist moment. We're going to have to experience a Nirvana. We're going to have to experience um, a Metallica Black album. Um, Frampton comes alive. We're going to have to experience something where everybody jumps on this one train. And then the the paradigm shifts, where uh, we we can all we can all just enjoy rock as it is, and, and there's an outgrowth of other bands um, from that. That's the that's the the only thing that I can think of that that can bring it back as far as dominance. But as long as as long as the kids are listening to it, that's what's it's what's making the money. That's what um, that's what's going to be the dominant art form. Yeah, and, and I mean, maybe maybe it never will really come back and be that do- dominant art form. I mean, you could always have another, we, obviously, another evolution of music. I mean, a lot of, like, the EDM sort of stuff is kind of taken over in a certain section of the population. It's obviously it, all over the place, because you can't, like, watch a movie trailer without some sort of Skrillex-type song being cut into it or that kind of thing. So maybe that whole dubstep EDM thing might just be the next wave, and we never really even go back... Uh, towards rock music there'll always be bands that do that obviously make this type of music um but i I think yeah like you mentioned the kurt cobain's death definitely had a lot to do with grunge sort of dying down but even like grunge i think of as something that kind of came up as a result of the times like a lot of music and art is it's just you're you're looking around the culture and I think grunge music was a lot of like people all coming down from their coked up high of the eighties. And now all of a sudden we're like, as a society, just more depressed and angry and you know, this, that, and the other thing. And that led to grunge music kind of just the music just reflected it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was sort of hoping that a, uh, interesting little side effect of some of the recent political things going on here is that we might get like some angry, rebellious rock music to come out of this with everyone, you know, with at least half the country being pissed off about the things going on in Washington right now. Um, and I don't, maybe there's hip hop that's doing that right now that I, maybe I'm just not paying attention to either purposely or not. But, um, you know, the, the, I kind of figured that once when you get a, when you get unrest amongst the population is usually when the best art is created. And I don't know, part of me was kind of hoping that rock and roll would make a revival out of all this. I don't, I don't know if that's the case anymore. Um, Hayes and I were, were talking about comedians on, um, on a segment here and we, we were talking about prior and we were talking about Chappelle and how from for me personally the best comedians were the ones who were social um who were the social commentary guys who took the culture and turned it on its ear and I don't I don't know if um 
I don't I don't know if that's possible now. I, I think you know it it that's maybe a little too broad now, and 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 there's so much you know as as far as news and as far as opinion and everything. I don't know if people want that in their rock. You know, we there, there's plenty of of socially aware artists out there or, or artists who um, have a song or two uh, that that reflect um, what, what's going on in the culture. But I don't I don't know if anybody's going to be, you know, today's Rage Against the Machine or um, or anything like that. And I, and I don't I don't know if the 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 so-called woke culture would would back them and accept them. I, I think, you know, it, the, the music would have to be exceptional. You know what I mean? In, in order for people to, and this is just my view, in order for people to, to to jump on that train. Although folks, you know, taking it outside of rock, folks still support Chris Brown and R. Kelly. And yeah. they're, reprehensible, they're reprehensible human beings. So, so I, you know, or maybe it would take an established band to, you know, I don't think U2 is ever going, going back to the political stuff, um, you know, outside of, um, I mean, they, they do, but it's not, it, it's not early YouTube at all. Like not a little bit. They're not angry young men anymore. Yeah. I think yeah. they're geared a lot more towards like charitable contributions and all that right. sort of stuff. So they do get on their high horse every so often, but yeah, it's not so much about rebellion as it is kind of just helping fellow men and women, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and is that a great rock song? You know, does that, I don't know if that makes a great rock tune. No, it doesn't. Kumbaya doesn't, you know, anger and hostility and passion. Those things make great rock tunes. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, even like, even their last big run, like U2, like Beautiful Day. Like, yeah, all right. It was a catchy kind of song. It was in all the Apple commercials and that kind of stuff. But like, is it really great rock music? I mean, it's good pop music, I would say. I don't know that it's, and there's definitely a, a difficult delineation to make there, but uh, getting back to a little bit of what you said there, yeah, I mean, there are certainly artists outside of rock and roll that have made their stance here as far as a political, like Katy Perry is now actually like one of the voices of the Democratic Party, essentially. She's so vocal about certain things, but I mean, not necessarily I was ever going to go out and buy a Katy Perry album anyway, but I I think you're in a certain way, you know, it, it, you're really going out on a limb to make that kind of statement. This isn't really necessarily what I saw coming a year or two ago, and I thought that maybe we were in for this revival of sorts. Um, it's almost like it's turned people off either direction if you make a statement. Uh, you know, even I'm sure Kid Rock has lost his supporters as a result yeah. of some of the things he's said in recent times. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe it's just not that that's not the platform anymore. Um one other thing, too, to touch on what you were talking about with, with hip-hop being the new culture, it's just so funny to me that the, the marriage between hip-hop and rock is such a weirdly associated one. Like, I mean, really, hip-hop came into the mainstream via rock and roll, right? Like, via Run DMC and Aerosmith doing right. doing Walk This Way. And you can almost say that rock and roll might have died off completely in the early 2000s had it not been for bands like Linkin Park and uh and and even like Limp Biscuit that clearly had hip hop influences and that's really what more than anything kept the genre somewhat relevant for the period of time it was. Um it could have completely gone away then, like in the time of Jay Z and Eminem just coming up in, in the two thousands into the mainstream and of themselves. Uh, you know, they, they could hip hop could have completely taken over a decade ago had it not been for rock and roll's ability to, to adapt a little bit towards keeping relevant via hip hop. Yeah, I mean <sighs> Again, I, I just I, I don't I don't think rock is, you know, as a rock guy. And, and this is not me holding on. You know, it's 
it, it's not dead. It's, you know, it's it's in a cryo tube in <laughs> every every seven years that, that there's a great album. But again, there isn't that unifying album. You know, it isn't like I, I can't. I, I remember um, I was list, I was watching MTV quite a bit when they actually played music videos and and they Go had a um, yeah you know music television um they had a show called headbangers ball i don't know if it exists anymore and they had this this one um music journalist and this was he was the most punk guy in the world but he listened to everything and to take it back to my favorite band queens of the stone age there was this big push for songs for the deaf to be the album and, and this is what everybody's saying Queens of the Stone Age is going to save rock with this album. Queens of the Stone Age is going to save rock with this album. And he's like, rock doesn't need saving. It just needs to be good and it just needs to reach people. I don't, I don't know if, again, I, I don't, I don't, dead isn't the right word. It, it, it's, it's dormant. It's not what it used to be as, as far as um, pervasiveness in the culture. But again, there are great albums that come out all the time there's a um which i missed and i actually went looking for it the other day and i'm probably just going to download it um there's a red hot chili peppers album that came out earlier this year that i had no idea about until um actually my daughter sent me um um an mp mp3 i think it was i think no it was a video so it was mp4 this great tune like tremendous tune but but it's an older it's an older band like chili peppers are 20 years old as a band by now, easily, yeah. you know, Queens is a, is a 20 year old band. Like, like you were saying, there, there are a lot of bands that is, have existed for a long time, but there, but there's no new, new names, new voices, new ideas coming out that people can latch on to. And I, I really think that's sort of the, that's sort of the issue. I mean, again, like pop's never going anywhere. Pop's super accessible. And again, the, the, the most dominant, um genre of music is is hip-hop by by far you know that there, there's got to be some some room to be made i guess for um for somebody to come out and and make some 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 dope ass rock music that that people can can get behind yeah i don't i don't i don't know if it's like you said i don't know if it's possible anymore you know I, like like rock may have had its it's may have had its time i know that um again the, the queen's album is doing okay but for as much as I love it and for much praise is getting, it's not it's not breaking that, you know, two million, three million um, downloads, purchases, what, what, whatever the metric is. Yeah, there there really aren't a whole lot of bands. I mean, even as somebody who tries to keep up with it as best I can, I mean, even I'm listening to, you know, albums that are at most, you know, like most current, maybe five years old, six years old, whatever the case may be. Uh, there was a band... That came out, uh, I want to say, it might have even been close to 10 years ago by at this point, but maybe at least five, called The Gaslight Anthem. And uh, I recommended this in our group chat, so maybe you picked up on it, but if not, I know C CEO has listened to it. And they had a vibe where it's sort of like a modern Bruce Springsteen kind of thing going on, and I, I don't know. I mean, like I, it was something I really took to. I couldn't wait to hear more from them and to see if there was more bands that would do that sort of thing. And I don't know. I mean, as good as it was and as much acclaim as I read about it, I haven't heard a whole lot about them or any real bands in the mainstream. Like I said, like Imagine Dragons seems to be one that's that can't seem to do any wrong in the world of modern rock, I guess, because every song they come out with is all over every radio, every commercial 
um, you know, all over the place. So maybe maybe they're the new, I guess, kings, uh, at least as far as the modern group goes. But yeah, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it's it's not necessarily dead. It is it is dormant, certainly. Um, getting back to, I guess, just a little bit more kind of general stuff. Uh, we got your favorite front men, favorite bands, uh, favorite albums, favorite non-Queens of the Stone Age albums, maybe, I guess, in your There case. are none. Stop that. There are none. <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness. Um, you know, up, up until probably St. Anger, I had every Metallica album out there and they, they just sort of, this, didn't they put out something new this year? They did. Or, or last year? Yeah. Hardwired, I think. Uh, at least that was the name of the single. I don't know if that was the name of the album, but yeah, it, it's actually pretty good too. And very true to their roots. Very, very okay. going back to, uh, like seek and destroy kind of stuff. Uh, obviously a little bit more of a. Not Seek and Destroy, whatever that album was called. Uh, I'll get to it at some point, I'm sure. But yeah, yeah, yeah very, very akin so. to the old school, like speed metal kind of stuff and a little bit less of, yeah, the St. Anger kind of just trying to be modern. I think that I think yeah. they did a good job of kind of mixing it all together from the, the stuff that I heard. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm in that same sort of boat with some of the older stuff. I, I'm a huge Iron Maiden fan. So they, okay. when yeah. they come up with stuff, like I'll, I'll listen to it at least once just because it's deserved at this point. They've had, I don't know, 30 albums of awesome metal music over time. So, um, but yeah, Metallica, Timeless, uh, any, any, anything else as far as albums and, and bands? I mean, you, you can never go wrong with, um, uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, again, Flake, oh my God, I'm so flaking on names today um the the the, fir the first big album from guns N' Roses. oh appetite for destruction thank you i i, I needed you on that <laughs> yeah and that that's and that's you can't get any more pure kick-ass rock and roll than appetite that is just beginning to end you it's one of those albums you don't skip around on it, it's it's just it, it's it's probably I would argue that it's the perfect rock album. Yeah, no, that that argument can definitely be made. Uh, Guns and Roses, yeah, and and talk about frontmen like Axl Rose, man. I mean, there's few guys that have really encompassed Just, the band yeah. the way that he does. Um, my my two favorites are always like One and One A or Jim Morrison and Freddie Mercury. Uh, just because those bands, like those bands, could not exist without those guys. And as a matter of fact, those bands yeah. mostly were those guys. And to just have the control of the crowd, and they, those guys were like rock stars in the truest yeah. possible sense. And they were, they were, they were artists too. And that, that's the, that's the thing about those guys. They were really pushing the boundaries as far as lyrics and performance. Um, Freddie Mercury may be the greatest visual frontman there ever was it's like okay and, and this is what i say about stars in, in any form of entertainment if you're plying your trade if you're doing what you do and we have to absolutely stop what we're doing to watch you that's a star yeah no no i don't i don't care what else is going on we've got to see what's happening over here and, and mercury had that that magnetism and that 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 voice, it was just, um, yeah. Queen was just a phenomenal band, phenomenal band. Yeah, and uh, and I always think of, of Jim Morrison along those same lines as well. Like the Doors, in addition to their music being just so driven from so many different, from jazz and from blues, and like really true to what ultimately encompassed rock and roll, at least that for that period of time. Uh, but yeah, like I mean, the guy 
he he was very much in the same vein as Freddie Mercury. Like you, you can't look away when Jim Morrison is on stage. You're trying to figure sure. out what he's tripping on. Like why is his dick <laughs> hanging out? There's like I mean Jim Morrison was just a yeah. madman, um, you know, a cultural revolutionary of sorts, yeah. and then tragically, you know, another one that was taken from us way too early. Yeah, we are we are talking about a lot of a lot of guys who have passed on. You know, I was um I was heavy into um, Bowie's last two albums. Um, and he's he's just I mean, you can't say front man because, you know, he was mainly a solo, a solo artist. But right. um, the to watch a guy's evolution, I mean, in, in, in a, the, the best bands and the best artists evolve like some stuff, you know, you, you take a Prince, for instance, nothing's ever going to be as classic as Purple Rain. It doesn't mean that the the, the newer works weren't tremendous and, and that he didn't evolve and get better as an artist and a musician uh I, and I, I think that was the thing about bowie bowie very intentionally um pushed the boundaries in, in every regard I, I never considered him um a great a trim like a, just a great songwriter i never thought of him as a, I, I thought he, he he made great songs but he wasn't like this this sort of um this sort of lyrical genius, yeah. Uh, but musically, and and here's a guy who was made for the MTV um, generation. Every time you saw him, it was something different. He he was just okay. This album's this, and that's now that's gone. And this album's this, and we're going to give you a different presentation each and every time. That um that Black Star. I don't know if you heard the the Black Star album. Um, I haven't. No, I'm going to check it out though. Okay, if you if you uh, let me drag this out just a little bit. If you take that in, in if you take into consideration that um, he was making this album, knowing that he was going to die, he absolutely knew he was going to die. There's a great documentary about it, and listen to the album. It's like okay, I'm absolutely devastated. <laughs> I am, yeah, I am emotionally destroyed listening to this album. But it's it's a, it's a tremendous piece of work though. No, I can imagine. And, and, you know, it's just one of these things that I, it's strange enough that these types of topics always come up whenever I'm on here. But it's like one of those things that you just be be aware of any any person that's spewing anything out, music, you know, speech, whatever it is on any platform, you know, like be aware of their motivations and their motives and their biases and like to, to be writing an album knowing basically you're near the end. And for it to come out the way that you're describing it does, and I have no doubt it does, and I'm sure I'm going to check it out and feel the same way, but it's like, wow, you know, like, that's that's deep, and there's really no other way of looking at it. Bro, this fucking art. It's it's like, yeah. it is, it, it is uh, the zenith of uh, of art. This this guy just, he, he, he took it to a place that you can, like, you can barely, you can barely imagine. You gotta, and uh, I think it's called um, Bowie the Last Two Years is the documentary. Okay. Um, or no, last five years. Last five years. I, th- I think you'll uh, you'll appreciate it, especially in context. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna check both of those things out. So um, yeah, definitely. Thank you for the recommendation, by the way. And um, before we get out of here, one one question. I didn't tell you this one was coming. So uh, if take the time, all the time you need on this one. Should an uh, I guess should an alien life form of some sort arrive <laughs> on planet Earth, and we need to give them one song to describe what rock and roll means, or at least means to you? Um, what, what do you got? I have an answer to give you a little bit of time. Um, it's very simple. Led Zeppelin's rock and roll, like is to me the most rock and roll song it is right down to the title. Um, but I mean, by all means, if you've got another suggestion. Well, um, 
Aliens are here already. Yeah, um, that's true. They're already you know, here. Okay, so should you bump into one? Yeah, um, I will. Man, that's, a, that's great. That is a great question. And it's like, how could you not say cashmere or, uh, you know, how could you not say inner Sandman? I am oh, yeah. going to. Wow. Mind blown, Bello. Mind <laughs> truly blown to encom- what one song would encompass. Dude, I, you know, in. People are going to hear this, and it's, it's Paradise City. That's a good one. Yeah, it, that's it, it's it is. It is uh, I mean, when you think about, I think of summer when I think about that song, and and the way it sort of where it starts off and it rises and rises and then explodes at the end. Yeah, lyrically, musically, that's um. You talk about embodying a, a culture. That that's it. Yeah. No, that I mean, hey, I I cannot argue with you there, and uh, we got a lot of Guns and Roses in here, which is great. I mean, Guns and Roses one of one of the quintessential rock and roll bands. So no, you certainly can't go wrong with Zeppelin, with Metallica, with Guns and Roses, definitely all rock and roll by any measure. Gerald, man, thank you so much for coming on here. This is a great chat. Hopefully, the audience is is appreciating it. Unless you have anything else, and by all means, if you do, uh, go ahead and just let the people know where they could find you on social media. Well, thanks again. Um, definitely anytime. Uh, Hayes, Hayes knows that I'm at you guys' disposal. Um, I am Gerald L. Cooper on Twitter. Gerald Cooper, some form of Gerald Cooper everywhere else. If it's got a, a comic book-related icon on it, it's me. Uh, and I also do a little pro wrestling podcast called The Hour of Honor over on the WWPN Network. Check us out. Good stuff. Yeah, you know what, it's funny you should say that, and obviously I'm over at the WWPN as well, and maybe one last topic, I guess, before I let you go, but uh, I, a lot of the times I look at it this way, in the absence of true rock stars and things of the like, now obviously hip-hop is sort of taken over in some respect as far as rap stars being the new rock stars, but sure, I, I always look at it like pro wrestlers, in a way, are kind of the modern rock stars. I mean, if you look at any of them on Twitter, they have a bajillion followers, uh, they're certainly not as niche and as off in the distance as, as they once were for the mainstream and they they portray these characters the same way like a jim morrison or a freddie or um or even like kurt cobain i mean a lot of these guys they they were very much who they pretended to be or at least presented themselves as but even that like in the public eye the old school rock star was just himself turned up to 11 and that's sure. basically what we always say about the best wrestlers so maybe in some respect wrestlers are or at least could be the new rock stars Absolutely. I, I mean, and, and again, they're 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 completely misunderstood by by many. Uh, yeah, they they they're kind of in their um their own little world, and they they do something that folks that a lot of folks don't understand. But then again, there are those of us who who love what they do. So, yeah, it's it's just another art form, and uh, you know, art art's a wonderful thing, and getting to talk to uh, talk about it with with people like yourself, making it all the better. Again, Coop, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully you'll be back on sooner rather than later. If not, I'll see you in the group chat. (laughs) (laughs) All right, brother. Thanks Uh, a lot. Thank you.
right, so that was our Cypher segment with Gerald L. Cooper. Thank you again, Coop. Always great talking to you. Always great talking about some rock and roll. Always great being here on the Awakened Soul podcast. So, again, this is uh, the Andrew Bello. I'm making the most of this here. I'm going to milk this for all I got. Got the platform. I'm going to go ahead and take it. Uh, we did have a couple of interviews that occurred over the last week that I wanted to touch on as well. I actually sat down and watched an entire interview on CNN featuring Hillary Clinton and Anderson Cooper. I managed to keep my lunch down. Uh, but nonetheless, a uh, couple things I wanted to talk about about this interview. And then also there was a 60 Minutes interview with Steve Bannon. They actually touch on a lot of the same stuff, as you'd imagine, because they're pretty much talking about you know Trump and the election and all that sort of stuff. So wanted to touch on some of the things that they touched on together. But first, let me get into some of the things that they touched on kind of independent of one another. So Hillary Clinton actually talks about at some point during the interview that she has with Anderson Cooper, and I'll get into the difficulty of the question she was asked in just a second here, but she was asked about, you know, supporters coming up to her after the election and asking essentially for absolution. They didn't do enough, they didn't vote, and they feel bad, and they actually will approach Hillary Clinton in diners or whatever the case may be, or out in the woods, and they'll ask her, because Hillary likes to go on her hikes with Bill, um, you know, the, whatever the case may be, they'll like ask her for forgiveness and Hillary. And you know what? This is actually good on her on this one is not really willing to give it to people. And you know what? She's right in this respect. So yeah, I actually said Hillary Clinton is right about something. Don't faint. Um, but no, she, she's absolutely right here. If you were a supporter of hers and you didn't vote, or if you really thought that Donald Trump's election was the end of the world and you did not go out and try to spread the word for her, you failed. And frankly, she shouldn't have to absolve you of your guilt. She's the one who really felt the weight of this because she, you know, threw herself out there, put her whole life together to try to be the not only a president, but essentially probably knowing even early on 30, 40 years ago that she had the shot at being the first female president and you were a supporter of hers and you didn't go all out. You didn't do enough. And I'm grateful for it, but Hillary's not, and you shouldn't expect her to smile and tell you everything's going to be okay, because, you know, for her, frankly, it's not, and if you think that Donald Trump being the president is the worst thing in the world that's ever happened, then it's not going to be for you either. So, you know, people are looking to blame others or, or whatever the case may be. These people are actually looking to blame themselves, and they were getting no absolution from Hillary Clinton, and I actually kind of admire that. I mean, it would... It, to me, would be really facetious of her to just kind of smile and nod and tell everybody everything's okay. Clearly, this was this woman's life's work, and people let her down. And she let herself down, but other people let her down, or at least these people think that they let her down. Let them think it. Uh, uh, honestly, uh, I'm with her on that one. She talks about some alternate nostril breathing during the course of this interview. Like I said, Anderson Cooper tosses her some softballs, like, how did you deal with the stress? And She's like, I did some alternate nostril breathing. I was cleaning closets and uh, I had my fair share of Chardonnay. Always, you know, a great thing as a female role model to talk about how you leaned on alcohol to help cope with your problems. You know, like I, I think that's just, I think that's terrible. Um, I, I, I'm not opposed to somebody having a few drinks to kind of, you know, chill out at the end of the day, but to have an issue this large and to be as open about the fact that she just dove into the bottom of a bottle. And I'm not saying she's an alcoholic like some outlets are saying. And there have been some rumors in the past that Hillary likes to have one too many and yell at staffers. But 
Um, you know, I just, I didn't think that was a particularly great answer. Like, just, just keep that part off of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with, with, uh, you know, lying through omissions sometimes. That would have been a good time to do it. Now we're going to get into the thick of it here. She's still on this Russia thing. Like, she still thinks Russia cost her this election. Um, she's convinced that there was some sort of collusion, although she won't say exactly as much. She does say that she's convinced that something was going on there. There was meetings. There was probably money exchanged. Hey, if all that ends up being true, then it ends up being true. I'll eat my hat. Um, but I, I just don't think that's the case. And she addresses some of the things like the Facebook ads and the sock puppets. Sock puppets are like people that are hired to run fake social media ads and try and spread propaganda, essentially. So you could be talking to somebody on Twitter about politics. You, you, you could think you're talking to some like millennial college age girl about socialist policies or whatever the case may be. It could be really just like a 50 year old man sitting behind a desk in an avatar somewhere, just doing everything that they can to, to spread either lies or truths or whatever the case may be, but these people are in and of themselves a lie. Like the, the avatar you think you're talking to is not the person that you think you're talking to. And some of these people run several accounts simultaneously. Like they could be a 70 year old grandma and a 16 year old boy and, you know, something in the middle as well, I guess, you know, so the, that, I mean, that does happen, but she doesn't address whether or not there's anything like that going on her side. Obviously, the investigations that have been done have been to see what's going on with the Trump side. But, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there were people on the Democratic side doing the same thing. So, for her to just kind of push that off like, oh, only the Republicans were playing that trip trick or only Trump was playing that trick, uh, I doubt that very, very much. Um She's still on the Russia WikiLeaks connection, which I cannot stress enough is just a fallacy. And if you want, I actually brought some material here for you guys to check out. So there was a report done by a group called Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, uh, a group of former CIA, FBI, NSA members that have gotten together and do like private intelligence research in order to try to ultimately provide some sanity for people who are really worried about what's going on behind the scenes, maybe even for themselves when they see crazy stuff on the news. They did a report, and it's uh, there's a really good article about it on thenation.com, so go ahead and check that out and be your own judge. But essentially what they do is they break down the, uh, the DNC email leaks, and they determine that based on the speed of the transfer of the files, because you can actually see you know, if you like go into your Windows Explorer or whatever, you could see the details of like when the file was modified, when it was sent, when it was created. They went and did this and, and you could see that the files are transferred at such a speed that they absolutely could not be conducted through some sort of trans-oceanic hack. Um, it would have had to have bounced through a million servers and the files just would not have transferred that far that fast. Um, so in order for all of this stuff to have been what it was, um, it would have had to have come out through some sort of internal hack and leak. Basically, somebody stuck a thumb drive into a computer at the DNC, and that's how the files left the DNC in a thumb drive, not via some sort of hack or, you know, foreign power or whatever the case may be. So again, that material's there. Go check it out, thenation.com. Um, it, it's, it's a report about the DNC email leaks. I don't have the exact name of the article, but you could search it. If you look for VIPS, V-I-P-S, in thenation.com, 
DNC emails. You'll you'll find it, and it's there, and it's a very elaborate, well done, well explained theory. Uh, you know, it's not proof until it's proof, but at, at the moment, it appears to be uh, you know the 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 determining factor as to whether or not it was a leak or a hack. The speed of the transfer has a lot to do with that, and I don't know a whole lot about hacking, but I know I could tell you it probably takes files a whole lot longer to tr- to get from the DNC headquarters to Moscow than it does to a thumb drive that's sitting right in the USB port. So anyway, uh, that that's something I just thought was... It, it's just silly that she's still pushing this narrative, and especially like, hey, how do you know? Like, what do you think you know? And if you do know, like, who's who's giving you security clearance? You're not a president. You're not a, a public figure anymore. I don't know. I don't want to rag on. I don't want this to turn into like me ragging on Hillary. Frankly, th- this whole interview was sort of just kind of a combination of funny and sad to me. So I'm just going to move on. She talks about how the emails were weaponized. She's not wrong. But some of the stuff in this e- in these emails and the DNC emails and the Podesta emails and all that stuff, some of it was real. It's a lot of like back and forth between DNC staffers or high ranking DNC members talking about their fan base or their voter base in a very non you know flattering fashion. Uh, there's there's a lot of like these people are dumb and we need to keep them dumb and they're just stupid enough to believe this kind of thing. You could go in and look. I mean, it's going to be a pain in the ass to find because even if you try to do a Google search of like mean things and WikiLeaks, you're not going to find them because you know it's Google. They're they're buddy buddy with them. And I looked. I literally looked for hours uh, trying to find some newer ones because I remember looking at all these when they came out and they were crowdsourced and they were cited nicely on reddit and you could go back in and actually find the source and read it and there was some just there was some nasty stuff in there like the the dnc does not think highly of you if you're a democrat apparently or at least of of the bulk of you um so you know that that was something that she just completely skipped over she thought that there was like she jumped to the pizzagate thing which is probably just a bunch of tinfoil hat stuff but there's definitely some weird shit in these emails that could lead you to believe that there could be some sort of like underground ring there's definitely some code being used in some of these and it could be completely innocent like it could be you know maybe i don't know somebody's like mother-in-law got a goofy nickname and they just like ran with it for a little while like i don't know what the case may be i'm not going to pretend to know exactly but you see some of these emails and there's these large amounts of purchases of hot dogs and mentions of things like walnuts and walnut sauce and like large quantities and it's all very weird and it's all been determined that some of these things are actual like keywords or code words that are used in child trafficking rings so that's how the pizzagate thing kind of all got started and then it got kind of rolled into there's like a specific pizza place and some guy went in with a gun and it, it, it turned into like obviously that pizza place is probably not running some sort of child sex ring out of the basement uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other nefarious things going on within the Democratic National Committee. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, a lot of them were discovered in this email and dispersed at nauseum. Um, I saw more than enough of my fair share of some of the stuff during the election time. But um, let's let's move on to some of the other things here. She's uh, She feels that there's not enough expertise in the White House right now, which is, you know, fair to say, I guess, if you're the one who thought she had the expertise and, and you're not there. So, uh, I mean, yes, there's definitely some people in the White House that are a little green, little little new to this whole policy, political thing, our president included. Um, but I ask, I ask, like, expertise in what exactly? Because the reason that people didn't want Hillary Clinton to be their president is because they think she has an expertise in being sort of just a fat cat politician that doesn't get anything done, lines her own pockets, um, you know, 
spends time with her husband, who's, you know, a less than reputable character. Yeah, there there is a lack of traditional expertise in the White House right now. That does not mean that they can't get things done. George Washington was a president once and had no experience in politics before that. We we tend to look back on him fondly. So I'm not saying Trump is George Washington. I'm not saying um, that you know that everything that's going on in the White House is just peachy keen. But it is still to some degree very much an adjustment process for a lot of people who spent no time in politics and are now running the most important political office in the land i'm not gonna ask hillary to give it some time but let's yeah let's give it some time um she talks about the electoral college uh she didn't like it back in 2000 when al gore lost and she doesn't like it now for obvious reasons because she essentially lost the election because of the electoral college i think it's important to remember why the electoral college exists the electoral college exists exactly because of reasons like 2000 and 2016 it's that if you are a presidential candidate and there's no electoral college and all you have to do is just win the popular vote you're going to go to new york chicago houston la you know the biggest cities in the country you're going to just do your thing there and you're going to completely forget about middle america and that's why the electoral college is there is to protect people in the flyover states from just being pulled into, you know, the cosmopolitan views of, of people who live in the city and have no idea what it's like to live out on a farm or live out in the suburbs. It's a completely different dynamic, and there are completely different people who live in completely different states and areas all across the country, and they all need to be represented equally to some degree, and that's what the Electoral College does. So, you know, Hillary wants to moan about, the, I won the popular vote, I won this, that, and the other thing. That's not the game. The game is to have the most electoral votes. It's like if you were in a baseball game and you had 20 hits and your opponent had 10 hits, but your opponent had 10 runs and you had five. And now all of a sudden you're like, well, I had more hits. That's not the game. You didn't play the proper game. I'm sorry. You lost. Like that's to, to sit back and complain about the rules of a contest that you knew the rules of from the get go. Just I'm sorry. I can't feel bad for you on that front. She also goes on to talk about Donald Trump. Donald Trump talks about her a lot, and she feels like he should have other things, you know, better things to do. She's right again here, so this is two. She's absolutely correct. He has better things to do. I think Trump likes to lean back on her because he gets a lot of criticism. I bring her up a lot, too, when I talk about people about politics. Uh, we're, we're, you know, they, they want to naysay something Trump's doing, and I say, look, like, the guy's not perfect. I don't agree with everything he does. He's still a way better choice than Hillary Clinton ever could have been. And I still firmly believe that. And I think there's a lot of people out there that do uh, as well. We call them the Trump base. There, There's at least a, a 90% of those people are in that camp because they knew that Hillary Clinton was not good for this country and they, they were willing to try anything else, even Donald Trump. So, you know, there's that. And... She's not wrong, though. He needs to stop talking about her and stop talking about things that have nothing to do with the, the presidency and the current state of the country. But, you know, I'm sure he enjoys taking jabs at her. I'm sure there's no way in hell she thought she'd lose to him. And I think she may have probably even said as much to him personally, which is why he likes to kind of dig it back at her at any given opportunity. He's digging on Obama. He's, you know, he's taking digs at everybody. That's just sort of the guy he is. Again, he's not perfect, but he's our president. Let's just, 
let's just go ahead and move on with that. Uh, the next thing here she talks about, and then I'll get into Steve Bannon here. Uh, she talks about Bernie Sanders and how he failed to unify the supporters, which was not his job. He was trying to run for the office, and it was not his job to make sure everybody got along as they were getting through the primary. Once it was clear that she did win, which, by the way, she technically didn't win. All of a sudden, she cares about the Electoral College. You can go out there and see that Bernie Sanders may have very well won that primary and that it may have very well been rigged. I believe a court actually recently ruled that it had been, but essentially because the DNC is a private organization, they could do that. Um, I, I saw that out there. You could definitely check it out. It could very well be fake news. I'm not going to lie. I don't vet everything I read. It's very hard to do that. I read a lot. Um, so if, if I'm wrong, find me on Twitter. Let me all, let me know about that. But there is some strong evidence to suggest that Hillary Clinton's camp did everything they could to keep Bernie Sanders from winning that nomination. The same way the Republicans did to Donald Trump. You know, Hillary and Donald both ended up pulling it out on their respective ends. But, you know, the Bernie Sanders's job was not to make everybody like Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders's job was to try to become the president. And once that didn't happen, he fall, he fell in line and he was at the DNC. You can go watch his 2016 DNC, uh, Democratic National Co Convention speech where he talks about and literally says Hillary Clinton must be the next United States president or the next president of the United States. It's it's as clear as day that once he was out of it, he threw his support behind her, much to his fan base's chagrin, too, mind you, myself included. I'm not a Bernie Sanders fan. I think socialism is garbage, but the guy, like, he fought hard. I'm not going to lie. Like, I don't love some of his ideas, but I would have preferred him to Hillary again. So, you know, like, I'm watching the guy. I can understand the movement. I think there's a lot of weird parallels to the Trump movement and the Feel the Burn movement. It, they're very much opposite ends of the spectrum, but a lot of it has to do with we're done with the establishment political elite class, and we want to try something new. Now, some people over here wanted to try something new where everything got everyone got everything for free, and someone over here wanted to try something new where they wanted to build a wall and keep illegals out. Uh, you know, there's, uh, again, opposite ends of the spectrum, but there's there was a certain connection that I think some Trump supporters and some Bernie supporters had on that one ground of we are done with the same old politics. So when Bernie lost and it was, you know, widely at least considered that he may have had that primary stolen from him. And then he just like went down and knelt at the at the throne of Hillary Clinton I think he lost a lot of support amongst his base. I know he lost a lot of support amongst the Trump base because those of us who did have some respect for him lost it, um, or at least the bulk of us did. So, you know, Bernie Sanders did what he had to do or did what he could do once it was his time for him to do it, but it was not his job to make people like Hillary Clinton when he was running against Hillary Clinton. That's absurd. Um, let's see if there's anything else. Oh, one last thing about Hillary. I'm sorry. And she asked, she's asked about whether or not she needs to go away in order for the Democrats to move forward. She says, no, I'm not buying that. She's got too much expertise and too much knowledge. So basically she, no, she's too important or she thinks she's too important to go away. And let me tell you this folks, as a, as, as somebody who leans right and who will never vote Democrat in all likelihood, the longer she hangs around, the worse off the Democratic Party is. She needs to just go away. She's not any kind of political figure anymore. She's not going to be running for office anymore unless she's just lying about that too because she does say she's no longer a candidate, but she wants to influence young up-and-coming candidates. She started an organization called Onward Together. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, like, she wants to stick around and bestow her expertise on people. What expertise? First and foremost, she tells us she's writing this book to provide this very information to future candidates, uh, future Democratic candidates, and future people who may be running for public office against somebody like a Donald Trump or just in general. So you wrote the book. We don't We don't need you to hang around anymore. You. We have the book. And if the book isn't all that great, then tell us that now so we don't run out and buy it. Not that I was going to, but, you know, I just think, I think she needs to go away. I think it's very clear that she lost the election because people don't like her and her hanging around and attaching her stigma to now up and coming Democratic candidates is not going to help them. It's not going to help their party. I don't necessarily care that that's, you know, that their party is taken care of. But if you are a Democrat and you want your party to survive, you need to get rid of Hillary Clinton and for that matter, Barack Obama, because he's just not, again, he has no chance of running for anything ever again. He's just needs to go away at this point. Like the man's legacy is minimalized. And if Obamacare ever gets repealed, it'll be gone forever because he just really didn't accomplish a whole lot. And that, you know, as far as policy goes, he didn't really uh, do a ton, and Obamacare was his big crowning achievement, and it could be gone. I, I mean, I'm not rooting for it for the sake of just for that happening. I'm rooting for it because I don't like the policy, but, you know, th these people are of an older generation of Democrats, and they need to desperately find their new one. Otherwise, you know, the Republicans or whatever conservative movement pops up, because I do believe that there will be some sort of split at some point in the next couple of years amongst the Republican Party. Um, yeah, like the, the, they're going to reign for a while until the Democrats can get their shit together and leaning on Hillary Clinton is most certainly not going to be the way to do that. So I want to get into Steve Bannon here a little bit. I learned a lot during this interview about Steve Bannon. I did not know a ton about the man personally. I've read some of his work. He was the chief editor at Breitbart after Andrew Breitbart died. He became the chief strategist at the White House, obviously, that much we all knew. He resigned not too long ago, and he does this interview with Charlie Rose at 60 Minutes. Um, he talks a lot about the campaign and his first impressions of Trump, and he kind of met up with Trump in like 2010 and 2011 when he was considering running for president in t for the 2012 election. Thankfully, he didn't because uh, he, he would have gotten buried, but... Um, and God knows we wouldn't have had, a, even if you're not happy with the results, God knows the hysteria that we had in the last couple of years is absolutely entertaining, if nothing else. So, um, you know, so, so Bannon meets him then, and he kind of had a feeling that something like this could ultimately happen. He was just enthralled with the charisma that Donald Trump has and the, you know, just the, there was just something about him, and he couldn't really put his finger on it, and basically a couple of years down the road, it's like 2013, Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions, and Stephen Miller, who's also part of the White House, they're sitting together, they're having a meeting, and they're mapping out this, this working class populist movement, because Romney, it turns out, you know, lost, lost his, his election, or lost the election to Barack Obama in 2012, and a lot of that could be pointed to working class Republican families were not coming out to vote for him because, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, they weren't connecting with him. Mitt Romney's sort of this hoity-toity silver spoon guy. Like, I can imagine that there's a certain section of the population that just didn't want to have anything to do with them. They're willing to ride out another four years of Obama, and they just didn't go to the polls. 
So that was the data that they had determined and that that's why Romney lost to Obama. So they were like, how do we target this crowd? How do we target this working class um, you know, group of people that just love their country, they go to work, they come home, they, they feed their families, like this is the group of people that they wanted to target. And they felt the best way to do that is through what they call a populist nationalist movement, basically stating America first, the, the rest be damned, unless we absolutely need to get involved for national security reasons, let's just focus on the good old US of A. And that sounds familiar, I'm sure, because that was what Donald Trump's campaign was all about. Um, so basically they see Trump or Bannon sees Trump talking about this sort of stuff from a distance and he realizes like, this is the guy, like this is the guy that we've been talking about. They actually had suggested or Bannon had suggested that, that Jeff Sessions be the guy to start moving this movement forward. And Jeff said, look, I'm all about it. I'm just not the guy. And then when Donald Trump pops up and he's basically already using their platform, they, they all kind of pointed at him and said, this could be it. And Jeff Sessions was one of the first Republicans to throw his support behind Donald Trump. And then Steve Bannon came into the campaign when they were down like 15 points in the national polls. And he brought them back up to almost even by the time the first debate came about. You could say what you want about Steve Bannon, the person. Steve Bannon, the political strategist, is fucking brilliant and there's no two ways about it like this guy showed up out of nowhere had no experience running a political campaign became a ceo of a presidential campaign a presidential campaign that featured an extremely unorthodox candidate in an extremely unorthodox time in our country and he just came right in harnessed all of it honed it in and and carried donald trump to the presidency now trump doesn't seem to think that that's as big of a contribution as as i do but my i mean there, you'll see here there's a couple things that we talk about where Bannon absolutely had key, like I had a big hand in in Trump's victory in some small fronts, if nothing else, along the way. We'll get to the debates in a little bit. He does go on to say that he believes that Donald Trump is the greatest orator in modern American history. I mean, hey, I'm all for some hyperbole, as is our president, as we all know. I don't know that you can make that claim, but he does go on to say he's, again, just for the, the sheer charisma, the authenticity, and most importantly, the stamina. Towards the end of this campaign, Trump was doing three, four, five speeches a day for, you know, sometimes an hour, hour and a half, two hours. He was doing three, four, five of them a day. And that's ultimately what won the election for him is doing all those extra tours and those extra stops in Michigan and in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania and in Ohio those are the states that won it for him. And Hillary was nowhere to be found in Wisconsin and in Michigan, and particularly in the counties in Michigan that she needed. It just, it didn't go well for her because she just didn't really, she was low energy to use one of Trump's terms. And Trump ended up um, winning because he just, frankly, he spoke to more people. He got to the point to where he physically spoke to enough people to where even the people he offended weren't outnumbered by the people that weren't. So, uh, you know, I don't think he's necessarily the greatest orator in modern American history. I think that's a bit of a stretch from Mr. Bannon, but nonetheless, he did say it, so I figured I'd throw it up in here. Um, let's see what else he He was just very much in awe of the Trump supporters' support for Trump. They, he, he just couldn't believe how much people loved this guy. Uh, he kept telling them that you have a 100% chance of winning as long as you stay on message. You are the agent of change. Hillary Clinton is old political hat. You need to just stay on America first and change and change. And you can really be that 
that candidate that provided change the way Barack Obama never really did. I mean, obviously, having a black president provided a certain level of change, but can anyone honestly tell me that his presidency was any different than any prior Democrats' presidency? I mean, I, I don't think it was, frankly. I, I, don't, I don't even see that there was, like, an overabundance of good done for the black community by Obama's presidency. And if I'm wrong, again, by all means, let me know, at the Andrew Bellow or at WWP and Bellow on Twitter. Um, but, you know, so he, he talks about Trump one last time here, I guess, or a couple more times, but he says that Trump always tells him that he doesn't choke. He's a big game player. So I, I certainly hope Trump's right in that respect, because as of right now, the presidency, you could say, is sort of a choke. Like, it just hasn't gotten off the ground the way that he wanted it to, certainly not the way that uh, many of his supporters, myself included, obviously wanted to. So I don't know. He ended up being the uh, CEO of the campaign. Like I said, he kind of came in while they were really down. As Bannon left his his family, essentially, at Breitbart, uh, he told them, he quoted Napoleon, and he says, when you set out to take Vienna, you take Vienna. And that's precisely what Bannon and Trump did here. It, I mean, by any means necessary, certainly. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, but he's very much in line with the locker up, the drain the swamp, the CNN sucks. Him, him and Trump were really kindred spirits that just hadn't come into contact with each other a whole lot. And once they found one another... It carried Donald Trump to the presidency. So, like I said, they did touch on a couple of things that they both had um, had talked about in their respective interviews, Hillary and Bannon. So, Comey, James Comey, they both talk about James Comey. I'm going to kind of breeze through these because I've already taken a lot of time up here, and I apologize. But she's still blaming James Comey, uh, James Comey for her not getting elected. She thinks that the timing of that last announcement threw people off. It may have even, is she, and this is, this is sort of sad. And I'm going to say this as bluntly as I can, cause I don't know any way to sugarcoat it. She actually thinks, um, it was either stated in this interview or in her book that white women didn't come out to vote for her because their husbands had convinced them not to, because James Comey came out and said a bunch of stuff that basically led them all to believe that she was going to actually get locked up. So she, the female candidate, female role model for all so many, thinks that all of the women of America are so futile and weak that they just bent at the whim of their husbands and didn't vote for her. I'm sorry, that sounds really, sh that sounds like a really shitty opinion of women, if especially coming from a woman. That's terrible. Um, and I... I mean, this is just, I don't know. I'm trying not to like get too negative with this because obviously I could and I, I really don't want to. But um, she says that Comey had shivved her, which is just like, it, she actually used the words shivved. She was shivved by, by James Comey. This is in the book. I got to be just perfectly clear about this. James Comey saved her. If it wasn't for James Comey, this woman might actually be in jail. She actually committed a crime which did not necessarily involve the proof of intent in order for her to be convicted of it. She took an oath to, uh, to, to, to give safe passage to classified material and to keep it safe and to keep it out of the public. And she went out of her way to install a server in a bathroom of one of her private homes that was not secure to the degree that it needed to be. And it made this information vulnerable. There does not need to be intent proven here to be found guilty of this crime. It is a crime that is literally that of neglect, in that if you take an oath to uphold a certain level of confidentiality, and you do not do that, not by accident, but by literally going out of your way to install a server in your home to make this material more easily accessible to you and your staff, you broke the law. 
and she could have very well been prosecuted and sent to jail, it was not James Comey's call in the first place as to whether or not that decision should have been made. That would have been on the Attorney General Loretta Lynch's uh, desk for her to make the decision. And how funny, we actually go ahead and talk about uh, Loretta Lynch a little bit later on. She doesn't seem to think that that meeting between Loretta Lynch and her husband days before James Comey's announcement that she was not going to be indicted, she didn't find that significant at all. As And I'm sorry, like, Folks, imagine your wife is under federal investigation and you happen to have a meeting with the Attorney General of the United States. Would that not come up in your conversation? Like, you can't tell me it didn't come up at some point during the conversation. And then for Comey to come out a few days later and say that they're not going to indict when, again, it's not his job to make that determination. All of this just smells very, very fishy. So for her to keep blaming Comey, like, just keep the name James Comey out of your mouth, Hillary, because it just looks bad. There's no way in which this man hurt her any worse than than you know than putting her in jail, which is what he probably should have done, or what Loretta Lynch should have done. I I don't know. I mean, this is I'm not just spouting these things off like I'm a crazy. Like I think she's actually got ch children locked up in her basement. She actually committed a crime here, a federal felony, in which she did not uphold her oath of confidentiality with this particular bits of information. So again, I mean, he saved her. He did not shiv her. Um, Bannon actually didn't think the emails were all that big of a deal. He, more importantly than why, uh, more importantly than the, than the emails themselves, he thought that like all of the Clinton foundation stuff and just the general kind of like the rumors and reputation of the Clinton family is really what did her in ultimately. And he's, he's definitely not wrong, but he's definitely doing this because he wants to push his documentary that he made called Clinton Cash, which is available on YouTube and you can watch it. I have, it's very interesting. I don't know. Uh, there is a certain degree of it that has been disproven to my knowledge. Um, but nonetheless, it was, it was what it was. Um, it, it was a very interesting documentary. If you have the time and you're actually curious about this stuff, check it out. I'm sure you are because you're, you know, listening to the awakened soul, but nonetheless, um, they talk about the, quote, Billy Bush, the, the the grabbing of the pussy incident. She says she was shocked, and this might be the biggest lie that she's ever told in her life. The, the fact that she thinks that this, quote, creep, Donald Trump, would say something like this is a shock to her. You can't be serious. I don't think this surprised anybody, and that's why I don't think it ultimately ended up hurting him all that much, is that this is the kind of thing that we totally expected Donald Trump to say when the cameras weren't around. We just knew for a fact now, which may have in some weird way emboldened some of his supporters. Uh, you know, there are there is a section of men out in the world that still talk like this. <laughs> so maybe they felt like this was something that helped it. I don't know, but she was, quote, shocked by it, and I'm I'm just calling bullshit on this. Hillary, you were not shocked by any means. Um, getting back to the Bannon side of things, he tells us a little bit of an interesting story um, between, I guess, the whole White House staff gets together after this Billy Bush tape gets, uh, gets played and gets put out into the public. Reince Priebus, who's in the room, tells Donald Trump, you need to drop out now or you're going to lose by the biggest margin in United States history. And Trump looks at him and says, well, that's a good way to start the conversation there, Reince. Um, but it turns out that that was not the case. Reince Priebus could not been, have been more wrong. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump won 44% of the white women vote or of the women's vote, period. He won white women. He lost all the other female demographics. Um, but he won 44% of women's votes nationwide. Uh, so obviously this thing wasn't as offensive to women as a lot of people thought it was going to be. And again, I can't help but think that that's because people just expected this from Donald Trump and they weren't wrong. 
And, you know, it also was 11 years ago, too. I think if we all look back 11 years, we may have probably done some shit that we don't necessarily agree with now or that we might even be ashamed of. And I don't think anybody really wants to be held to that standard. So, hey, 44% of women didn't think it was that big of a deal. And obviously, a bulk of the men did not either. Um, so moving on here, they get to the actual debates and to the actual campaign, and they touch on Bill Clinton himself a little bit, and it kind of is all interwoven here. So she's talking about that second debate, and she was trying to remain calm and composed. Instead of acknowledging the locker room talk, she thought that that might be a sign of weakness, like she couldn't handle that kind of language or whatever. Um, but she wanted to just turn around and say to him, you know, back off, creep. And she was afraid to say anything, and but, you know, here here's the bottom line here, and I feel bad for Hillary on this one, and yeah, I said those words. Um, she was damned if she did and damned if she didn't. If she said something to him, there was going to be a certain section of the population that was just going to be like, did you even have to address it? Like, do we need to keep bringing up this comment into a political candidacy? Like, you're above this, Hillary. There's definitely people that would have thought that. And then there was definitely the people that thought what they thought when she did what she did, which was nothing, that how do you not address it? Like, this was your, this was the wound that Donald Trump had finally exposed to the world. Like, all you got to do is just, you know, poke at it a little bit more, hope it gets infected, and maybe he'll go away. Sorry for the imagery. Um, but, you know, she was, she's coming up with all these posthumous, uh, you know, the reasons or things that she could have said and all this other stuff. I don't think that she should have turned around and said anything to him but i mean she didn't and it didn't work out for her so i can understand why she maybe thinks that that's something that she should have done and and maybe you guys do too what would you have if you weren't already a supporter of hers would you have been more of a supporter of hers had she used you know had she turned around and said like called him a creep or something like that at the second debate I, I don't think it would have helped, honestly, but hey, it you know, we all saw how it ended up anyway, so let me go ahead and move on from here. They ask Bannon, uh, or Charlie Rose asks Bannon, who won the debates? He gave a tie for the first one, he said Trump won the second one, and he thinks that it was close to a draw for the third one, leaning Trump. So very biased, obviously. When I watched the debates, I thought that the first one went to Hillary, personally. I think she was just more well-versed and well-accustomed to the format. She if nothing else, won it just based on etiquette and, and just being a, a seasoned debater. Like, she did her work, she did put in the time, she put in the practice, I think she won the debate. I think he won the second debate, and I think he won the third debate. Now, these are my opinions, and they are only my opinions, and if you think anything differently of it, I mean, by all means, we could debate about these debates that happened a year ago if you really want. Uh, so go ahead and, and find me on Twitter, and we could do that. But he talks about, this is the big part here, is that Hillary obviously has a husband who's got a dark and interesting sexual past and bannon was the one who decided that they the trump campaign should bring the bill clinton rape accusers to the debate and he was going to sit them right in front of a spot basically in the front row in a section where bill clinton was going to have to walk past them and they were going to jump up and say something to him just drawing all the more attention to that whole thing again Steve Bannon, think of him what you want as a human being. He could be my campaign strategist any day of the week. This is that, like, by any means necessary, we're friggin' winning this thing. And he was willing to pull out women that have accused their candidate, their, their opponent's husband of rape in order to try to win this election. Again, I mean, think of it morally what you will, but it, it's effective. And it damn well would have been. I can only imagine the hullabaloo that would have been caused if these women actually jumped up 
at the second debate and confronted Bill Clinton about these supposed or alleged rapes uh, that they they believe that they you know have have experienced via him. Um, so you know the Clintons are just sort of they got this high and mighty thing about them, and and Bannon knew that people felt that about them, and that he wanted to just try to chop them down to size. People really didn't think like the Clintons could be beaten. There was people like laughing at me for the entirety of the eighteen months leading up to the election. You know he doesn't have a chance, right? I said, well, you know, that's why they play the games. And um, I have friends now who come back to me and they say, you were the only one I knew who knew he was going to win. And I am I guess I'm with Bannon on this one. Maybe that's why I appreciate Bannon to a certain degree is that we have at least a similar line of thinking or a similar way of processing information. Last but not least, and then I swear this is actually last but not least here, I might cut some of this stuff out. So if you hear jumps in the edit, I apologize. Chelsea and Ivanka and Jared, they talk about the kids in the White House. They ask, would, um, they ask of Hillary, or Anderson Cooper asks of Hillary, would Chelsea be playing as large of a role in the White House as Ivanka and Jared do? And she says, absolutely not. She's busy doing other things like writing children's books and, yeah, I'm sorry, Hillary, I'm calling bullshit on this one too. Chelsea Clinton would absolutely have found a role in this administration if it was the Clinton administration. You know damn well that they want, they're already priming her for some sort of political future, so why wouldn't you have gotten her the experience when you had the opportunity to maybe some sort of low-level position, maybe some sort of consultant, this, that, and the other thing, get her some sort of clearance, get her some experience, and then when she goes to try to run for office several years down the road, now she's got something to lean back on as opposed to, you know, children's books so i'm calling some bullshit on that one and then you know on the other side of things uh they talk about jared and ivanka bannon talks about working with jared like very closely he thinks he's a very bright man he thinks he's a very big asset in particular in, in relations to israel and uh and by the way breitbart very very pro israel there are the obviously the anti-semite um accusations out there surrounding bannon um, he, he works at Breitbart. They're the most pro-Israel website out there as far as any sort of news outlet goes or at least anything that's coming out of the U.S. They actually have a base out in Jerusalem, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, they're very, very pro-Israel. They have a lot of prominent Jewish staffers, uh, including Joel Pollack, who's like their executive editor at large. And, and Ben Shapiro used to work there as well. So it's not as if they have this deep disdain for for jewish people they quite the opposite they they love israel and they hire many uh many a, a jewish writer so um i just thought that that was kind of interesting but yeah uh, bannon in particular very focused on what's going on in israel um because this is one of these instances where he feels that our national security does depend upon our relationship with them to some degree and he thinks that jared's doing a good job obviously he's biased in all this i'm not going to pretend that he's not but I don't know what kind of job Chelsea would be doing. I don't know what she's qualified to do. I don't know what Bannon and uh, what what Jared and Ivanka were qualified to do, but I know that whatever they're doing, it's not so bad because it's not all over the front page of the paper every day. The worst that I've heard about Kushner is that he might have been in on a couple of meetings with the Russians or whatever the case may be, might have been, um, you know, so it is what it is, but at least he's not, you know, he appears to be doing a good enough job to where there's no real lashback as to what he's doing. And hey, if you're on the left, and you don't like this White House, I got news for you. Jared Kushner and Ivanka are on your side. Like, they are way more left-leaning than anybody else in that White House by a significant margin. So if you're looking for people to pick on, maybe Javanka's not the people you want to be picking on. Just throwing it out there. But like I said, I wanted to get into these interviews. I am going to get into one last interview in the Stay Woke segment. 
But let's go ahead and let's get into some South Park here. Um, I was talking with Colin Weissong of the Wrestling World Podcast Network. You may know him as the Wrestling Redneck. And uh, we are going to go ahead and talk a little bit about South Park. So stay tuned. We're going to kind of touch on the upcoming season, some favorite characters, some overlying, uh, more meta story aspects of South Park, and, and basically how it's managed to circumvent political correctness altogether. Stay tuned for that right after this. So I wanted to bring at least one segment that brought a little bit of levity, but just in case everything else just went completely off the rails. And South Park is uh, like one of the things that I love more than most things, like wrestling, Marvel movies, South Park, the Mets, my family. Obviously, not necessarily in that order, but like these are the things that I hold nearest and dearest in, in my personal life. Um, and South Park's coming up, the new season, I believe season 21, is finally starting, and I've been just so excited. Last couple seasons have been, uh, and we'll get into this just in a second with my guest, but last couple seasons have been like a little bit more continuity between the episodes. South Park used to just sort of be in like a random event every week in this little world, but uh, I brought on Colin Wysong, a.k.a. the Wrestling Redneck of the Wrestling World Podcast Network, um, I, just because, first and foremost, Colin's one of the funniest dudes I know, and also big fan of South Park as well. So, I figured I'd bring him on, and uh, we'll talk about the genius that Matt Stone and Trey Parker bring to us every so often, unfortunately. Redneck, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, just ready to talk about, like, it's probably one of my favorite shows. Um, uh, more, I'm like... People have Simpsons as their favorite cartoon. South Park is probably my my favorite cartoon of all time. Yeah, I always I always put like South Park and Seinfeld are like one and two for me. I could just there's never a point in my life that I couldn't watch either. Oh yeah, and the, the two guys that do it, I mean, they're geniuses, and from the way that they came up to having this show, and for as long as it's lasted, um, and to be able to stay fresh with it, I guess is one of the topics that we'll get into. Um, it's amazing, and those it's. A credit to those guys' genius, because Trey Parker and uh, Matt Stone are really, really uh, intelligent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's without a doubt. I mean, even they've they've spread into movies and to Broadway and, like, killed it. Like, they do it. They're like, oh, yeah, let's do a musical. Book of Mormon comes out, and it's, like, the biggest thing and wins a million Tonys, and everyone and their mother is raving about it. Like, to the point to where, like, I'm not, like, a Broadway guy. I considered going to see it, and then I looked at the price tag and was like, man, I can wait for some sort of movie compilation but uh yeah like they they they're they're brilliant like you said and and one of the things i guess we'll talk about i'll kind of jump to it now is that south park like you said they keep fresh and a lot of that has to do with they and a lot of people don't know this like they do the show on a weekly basis like they literally as soon as the one episode goes out on wednesday night they start production on the episode for next wednesday like they're not doing like banked seasons or anything like that they literally will be able to do something that happened this week on an episode uh, you know, they had 
the, the it, it really, I think, kind of drew to people's attention a couple years, uh, several years back when Obama beat McCain in the election, and it was like the night before, and South Park came up with an episode basically for the next day. I, I guess they kind of knew the outcome maybe in advance, or maybe they wrote two episodes. I don't know if we ever really figured that out, but I mean, they're, they're doing it on a six-day cycle, and that's crazy. I mean, have you, have you seen that documentary that they did about it? Yeah, I have seen that, and it's amazing to think that they went from doing this on uh, construction paper, um, and then once they got it fully digitized and everything, um, they can just just crank out episodes. But, I mean, that just shows to their writing, um, you know, comedic writing, that the fact that they can take a couple topics, um, sit down in a matter of, you know, hours, write an episode, and then have it spit right out, and it'd be a gem. Um, I don't know if those guys play Dungeons and Dragons, because that's, that seems like that's something that uh, might be an influence um, in their career, and it's definitely a big influence in Hollywood. Um, just being able, as a dungeon master, someone who kind of leads the, the game, you create, you basically create a world of noth- out of nothing, and uh, you, you give it to your characters, and your characters kind of play around in this world that you create. And that's exactly what they've done with South Park, and that's exactly what they do with most of their movies, because I don't know if you've seen Orgasmo um, or Cannibal yeah. the Musical. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're great. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, I mean, before we get into the, the new season that's coming out here, what, who are just some of your favorite characters and episodes and, and why? Um, Cartman, uh, I guess if you want, you want to go with kids, um, Cartman and Stan are kind of my two favorite, uh, Cartman's probably edging out Stan, uh, just everything about Cartman. Um, he's kind of the one that they do all the shit to and he's you don't know about Cartman like is he he's ambiguously gay like he does all these different things like he's it's he's just a character that's full of all kinds of things um and then some of the peripheral characters uh Randy Marsh um became one of my favorite characters uh when he became kind of the main uh of some of the storylines like uh, the Mongolian episode which is one of my favorite episodes hey, you Mongolian don't you break down my wall um and then I remember the debut of Timmy and Jimmy. Timmy. Uh, both both of those guys, uh, Jimmy the stand-up comedian, uh, and then the City Walk guy, also a part of the Mongolian episode. Um, Towley, Chef, Mister Hanky, Satan, Mister Garrison, just to name a few more. Um, just all great characters. I mean, I, there's so many that you could name. Um, there's probably some that we've even forgotten that that are great characters. Yeah, I mean, you you hit on the two big ones that I was going to want to talk about a little bit. I mean, for me, uh, Randy Marsh has gotten a lot of buzz over the last couple of years. There was like a whole season that was basically, you know, wrapped around him being Lord, the pop singer. And, you know, like there's there's just like he's really caught a buzz back to like, I thought this was America and that, that, that sort of stuff. Like just Randy's always been a character that a lot of people really, really like. But to me, and you said it, like Cartman... Cartman, for my money, is the best character ever written. Like, and I'll put him up there with anything Shakespeare ever put out, or whatever the case may be. The just the depth of Cartman and the longevity of him being this way, his relationship with Kyle, his relationship with his mother or father, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, you know, there's just so many things with Cartman. Yeah, like you said, like we're not really sure about his sexuality now. It looks like he's going to be in a in a in his first on-screen relationship going into season 21. Um, you know, how is that going to play? They've had 20 seasons where this kid has never had like a girlfriend or anything like that. Now, you know, Cartman being the, the vile, disgusting, you know, little cretin that he is, 
now he's got like a girlfriend that's going to be hanging around with all the guys and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, it's going to be a very interesting dynamic. Uh, but yeah, I think Cartman is just the episode for me, like one of the best 22 minutes of television you'll ever watch is the episode entitled Scott Tennerman must die where this kid, like an oh, basically for those who are completely out of the loop here, uh, Scott Tennerman is an older kid that basically convinces Eric Cartman that like he could buy pubes and that's how puberty works. It's like, oh, I got my first pubes. So this guy, this older kid sells his pubic hair to Cartman for like 20 bucks and Cartman figures out that he got scammed and he gets back at him through this roundabout crazy plot where he ends up feeding him his own parents. So yeah, it's just the most ridiculous thing. Uh, did you, is that one of your favorite episodes as well oh yeah i remember because they had radiohead um in that episode come out and make fun of scott tenderman and uh i mean how could you forget uh the two two episode series of who's cartman's father um because that again is a a perfect part of who cartman is is that his his mom is his dad like it's it's all just crazy um you never find out who his dad really is in a sense yeah, well, we do much later on. Um, yeah. it, it turns out to, ironically enough, be also Scott Tenderman's dad, right? Or Scott Tenderman's mom or something like that, because he's, ha- he's Scott Tenderman's half-brother. Um, we end up finding out way down the line in, like, I don't know, in the last couple seasons, actually, or maybe the last four or five, but it's just, it's been really crazy that they've been working this level of continuity, and they do these, like, big trilogies, like Imagination Land or Black Friday or... One of my personal favorites, uh, the guinea pigs, the pandemic episode where the, the guinea, <laughs> guinea pirates had taken over South Park and guinea bees and... It's a guinea bear! No, it's a guinea mouse, stupid! Guinea Tyrannosaurus Rexes, and it was just like a bunch of, like, guinea pigs crawling around in South Park. It was really, really funny. And Craig's role in that episode to me, where he's just like, he got scammed out of giving them $100 to start a Peruvian flute band and ends up in this predicament and sure enough is the key to all of it it's just like the most ridiculous stuff and he craig throughout that episode like pokes fun at like this is why you guys are always getting into these situations because these four kids just make these horrible decisions and end up on these crazy adventures yeah i mean and and sometimes even when they try to pull themselves out of whatever's going on in town they still seem to get drugged back in Exactly. Yeah. Like no matter what, these four kids always seem to be the center of some sort of chaos in this you know world that Matt Stone and Trey Parker have built, like you said. Um, but I want to kind of get into one of the more meta topics here is South Park, for some reason, has been able to just be immune to political correctness. Like there was a period of time, like it's almost like they earned their stripes. There was a period of time where, you know, people were cracking down. I know you can't put this on television. You can't do that. You can't say this. I'm a celebrity. You can't say this about me. And ultimately, it just got to a point to where, like, if South Park wasn't making fun of you, you weren't relevant, and people almost started to appreciate it, no matter how horrible of a depiction that they may have been given. Um, How did South Park arise above, especially now, in this completely politically correct society? You know, how, how did they manage to get by here? And do you think it's more indicative of, like, a silent majority of people out there that have just had enough with political correctness across the board? Well, I think you look at it as, they, one, they've been doing it this long, and two, the way those guys view kind of how they write an episode, they they pretty much, no, no topic is off limits. So how can you be mad at somebody who's willing to make fun of everything? Like, if you're sitting down watching the episode and you get offended by one thing, but you're laughing at another thing, it immediately makes you a hypocrite. 
in, in just that one little 30-minute episode. And, you know, they've talked about it in the past. They When they write an episode, they go, um, I guess, to the censors with, with like an over-the-top just cut of their show that has just crazy stuff in it so that when they have something that's kind of um, on edge that they want to put in the show, they've got this over-the-top thing over here that they can basically say, hey, censor, if you leave this in, we'll, we'll cut this out. And it's worked for them so many times that they've been able to kind of push the envelope the way they have. Um, and again, I, that's what's uh, gotten them to 21 seasons coming up. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it just shows the longevity that they have. And I guess because people are so used to them now, like you said, now it's kind of a, uh, in the pop culture of, hey, let's have South Park make fun of me. You know, is it, you're not cool if South Park's not making fun of you kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, they're just, it really has gotten to that point, and it, it, even with, like, like you said, they kind of have, like, these overarching stories that go on within these episodes, so, like, if Tom Cruise were to actually try to sue them over them calling him a fudge packer repeatedly over and over again, like, it's literally, it's, it's you know, obviously it's a cartoon, A, B, you know, he's, like, playing a, a, a caricature of himself within the episode in that, like, he's working in a fudge factory for some reason, like, all of it's so nonsensical it's hard to really take offense to some it. of it has to do with broadcasting laws like because uh, I, I took a broadcasting course one time in college and they, they talked about like libel and slander and people that are famous like uh like michael jackson like you can basically say whatever you want about michael jackson because a lot of the stuff that has come out about him and, and the stuff that he's been tried for and things like that like because he's kind of infamous um and i guess tom cruise would fit in that mold so a lot of these people that they do make fun of kind of have that infamy attachment to them so i guess there is kind of that legal broadcasting rule that you can make fun of them and say whatever you want in them and they also have the parody um law that they can hide behind as well yeah absolutely and like you said earlier on um you know they they're willing to make fun of just about anything it's sort of like like i we have a running joke in my family like grandpa's not racist he just hates everyone equally like and it's almost <laughs> it's almost like a weird um you know it, it, it's almost admirable in how just they're so unbiased that they're literally just throwing shit in in, in all directions and you know should you get hit by it i guess it's you know it's i mean these guys took acid and went to the oscars yeah I mean, these are the type of dudes that they are, exactly, like, and and they're writing, like you said, you know, they started with construction paper cartoons about Jesus and ain't... They were just sending it to their friends. It wasn't even anything that they were trying to put out. It was like, hey, let's do, like, it, it would be like if I just cut wrestling neck promos and just sent them to you. Yeah. Imagine, imagine you get to that South Park level one day with redneck, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, there and and I believe we, you were talking about how they digitized it. If I'm not mistaken, I think a couple fans actually like created software for them and just gave it to them and just said like keep making South Park. Like they they didn't get a dime out of it. I'm sure you know maybe Matt and Trey eventually went back and compensated them in some way, but. Yeah, like, people were so in love with the show that they literally, like, programmed it for them and said, here, now you can make a million episodes, and hopefully they do. I have noticed some of the animation software that's out there that you can get, um, it, it's wild, it, it looks exactly like the, the South Park animation, like the characters and everything. Yeah, I mean, it's it really has become just iconic, and that particular style is so unique, it's almost like... I don't know, it's like the first time you saw Celebrity Deathmatch with, like, the claymation stuff being run That's on, like, almost a weekly basis. That's the show they need to bring back. That, that show, yeah. it, it definitely died off 
um, and, and lost its kind of luster. Um, but now with a lot of the with the space that has gone between the first time it came on and, and the things that have happened now, they could do probably another year or two run of just awesome shows weekly. Celebrity Deathmatch, oh. bring it back. Oh, give me give me Trump versus Hillary celebrity death match at the halftime of the Super Bowl like they used to do it. Actually, that's kind of how it started as they were doing them at the halftime show of the Super Bowl. But yeah, no, give me that. that that'd be wonderful. Um, one last thing on South Park before we get out of here. Um, I'm like a massive fan of the first and only South Park movie. Uh, I did say they kind of do these little trilogies here and there, which you can almost look like as movies. But if they were to ever do like a big time blockbuster um, movie again, what would you like them to focus on or sort of a, a plot line potentially for a movie? Uh, I don't, that, you know, that was, uh, I tried to sit down and think about that when you told me that was one of the things that you were going to talk, talk to me about. And, um, I mean, I definitely would be all down for another South Park movie. I mean, they, the first one they did, I mean, I think it won a Grammy or an Oscar for like best soundtrack. I mean, it, it definitely made waves for what it was, um, out there in the public. But, uh, I don't yeah, mean, it won. Uh, like a, I think for like best song in a movie, and then Robin Williams actually performed it at the Oscars, which was all the more crazy. <laughs> it was the uh, Blame Canada, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the Blame Canada song. Um, I mean, just like uh, something with the boys. Maybe just. I don't know. Maybe they don't. They, maybe they don't need to do a movie anymore with these guys. I, I don't know. Maybe show them all grown up. Uh, I don't know. I just. I can't think of it. I mean, they, I feel like they've done so much. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless this hurricane stuff uh, is pretty bad, then, then they could do do a whole disaster movie. But honestly, I think I think they enjoy doing the video games because I think this new game that's coming out, um, the way that you can just again with Dungeons and Dragons, you can have this open world and do whatever you want. And I think that's what they like about South Park and they like about the, doing the video game is that there, there's no boundaries. If you do a movie, you're going to have kind of the boundaries of what what you're going to be forced to do. Yeah, and I've heard a few ideas thrown about, uh, like maybe doing like a Randy Marsh story movie, or like him as a kid, maybe him and his friends are very similar to Stan and his, uh, you could kind of work something like that, but my personal favorite, if we were going to do a movie, is with the popularity of the MCU, and the DCEU, and all the superhero, and the X-Men, and all that kind of stuff, do a full-blown Coon and Friends, like, blockbuster movie, and just make it like a two-hour plot where... You know, they're trying to, uh, or, or Professor Chaos or Butters is trying to, like, take over the world, and Coot and Friends have to, you know, they did that whole series during the course of the show, but I, I would love for them to do, like, just this massive thing. Maybe they can even license, uh, I guess they don't even have to, but they could just bring in all the, the Avengers characters and, like, all the other, you know, Star Wars or whatever the hell they want to do and just make it just this massive, over-the-top, Michael Bay-esque explosion fest in cardboard form. Oh my God, the Star Wars episode, you, when you brought up Star Wars, the Star Wars episode, where they go to the, the used, uh, the, the Humvee lot. Yeah. <laughs> where where they, they hide, they had the episode of Star Wars at the Humvee lot, because nobody's going to go there. Oh, yeah, just like, they have, they have just like so many random nuanced things that are still funny, even years later, you think back, and you're like, oh, yeah, like almost, you know, like random little stuff, like, like Humvees being a thing for a period of time, and then not very quickly thereafter, but... Um, yeah, South Park, man. It's uh, 
it's great. And and this uh, this will probably air after the first episode of the season is actually up. But definitely, everybody, check it out. Check out the new season. They have made it a point to come out and say that they're not going to go Trump-heavy because they feel people are just sick of it. So if you're looking for entertainment that's not... It's always going to be political because it's South Park, but it'll at least be less so than a lot of your other entertainment if you're looking uh, to, to avoid the Trump madness. Um, and I don't blame you. Um, one last thing before we get out of here, Reddick, we were talking about in our group chat, white people's love for pumpkin spice. Tell me, tell me all about your love for pumpkin spice. Oh man. I mean, whenever, uh, I guess you're Vietnamese against, uh, Starbucks, but, uh, they, when they have a little pumpkin spice muffins come out with the, the cheesecake on it. Um, I just had a pumpkin spice frappe for the first time yesterday. It was very delicious. Um, it's definitely, uh, like they, they say, white girl season out there. Um, it's coming. Pumpkin spice everything. Pumpkin spice everything. I currently, in my house, at least over the last week, have had pumpkin spice Pop-Tarts, uh, pumpkin spice Cheerios, pumpkin spice coffee, obviously, um, probably some sort of ice cream product. And it, it hasn't even come close to the end yet. I do love me some pumpkin spice, man. I don't know what it is. Are you are it's, you gonna it, are you gonna burn a pumpkin spice candle later? At least one during the course of the season, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I mean, come on, the smell is half of the the glory. Whoever knows, like the the mix of cinnamon, nutmeg, and pumpkin, just amazing. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you for uh, for joining me here on the Awakened Soul podcast. I can't believe CEO let me take over, but uh. Go ahead and tell the people where they can find you on Twitter. And again, thanks for coming on. Well, uh, my name is Colin Weissong. I, I play a character, Wrestling Redneck, on the Wrestling World Podcast Network. Uh, usually do the redneck stuff when we're talking professional wrestling. And I, myself, when we do Cage Town, uh, it's a combat sports side of the Wrestling World Podcast Network. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Wrestling Redneck. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N-R-E-D-N-E-C-K. Very cool. Thanks again. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. All right, well, I want to thank Colin for coming on and talking about one of my favorite shows just of all time. I love South Park. I love it so much. It makes me so happy. It's one of those few things that I watch, and I just can't stop smiling, like, the entire time. I think when I watch it, my head goes back to when I was, like, 10, and I saw the first episode online and some, like, grainy-ass video that somebody sent me, and I was like, what is this? Why are these little kids swearing? My head could not wrap around it and i i loved it i just i don't know it's very much like i'm a big wrestling fan as many of you know like the attitude era stone cold steve austin coming in beating up his boss flipping the bird to everybody and drinking a beer was really cutting edge shit for a 10 11 12 year old and the same thing with south park and they all kind of came up at the same time so again thank you colin and thank you guys for listening and go watch south park and by all means find me on social media we could talk all about all of the wonders of past seasons, the current season, future seasons, future movies, as we talked about. Let's let's do it. Let's talk about some South Park men. Maybe I'll do a podcast about that one of these days. Who knows? Um, but let's get into the Stay Woke segment here. It got kind of a meta topic, but I am going to talk about a third interview for this week. We're talking about Jim Carrey. And is he batshit crazy or is he woke as fuck? We're going to find out. No, stay woke. Stay woke. Stay woke. Stay woke. Stay woke. Stay woke. All right, so let's talk about Jim Carrey because he might be completely out of his mind. He was interviewed at a New York Fashion Week, like red carpet kind of event. 
and he's asked just the, the stupidest possible questions because it is fashion week and it is fairly insignificant. And that's precisely what Mr. Kerry tells this interview. He says to her, I looked for what could possibly be the most useless, most meaningless thing I could do tonight. And here I am. Um, they're celebrating icons and he just says like, oh, we couldn't have found like a lower bar possibly than to be celebrating icons. And, you know, he's really just not happy to be there. Um, the interviewer asks him, you know, well, I mean, if you don't want to be here, I mean, you really got dressed up for nicely. And he says, uh, there is no me. This is, uh, you know, there's just things happening. They're just tetrahedrons moving. Um, he's, it, it, this whole interview was just absolutely crazy. Like he basically just tells us all that we don't matter. It's not our world. There is no him. He doesn't actually believe that the interview girl is there, but he believes that there's a, a lovely fragrance in the air. Like he's, lost his mind or has he has he lost his mind do we really matter are we nothing but just a cluster of tetrahedrons moving in the distance are we a field of energy dancing for itself as he also says at other points during the interview i don't know i like to think that i matter I like to think that you matter. I like to think that this show matters and that I'm not just completely wasting my time, that I could be doing other things that are far more exciting for me and for you and for whatever the case may be, right? Like, I mean, we, is every communication we ever have with a fellow person just completely useless? Are we really just a field of energy dancing for itself? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think we're quite as significant as we like to think we are, but I don't think we don't matter at all. I think there's definitely something too our existence here and this is what leans me into the stay woke segment is i was going to kind of talk about self-awareness and just knowledge of self overall because i'm i'm a fan of that black star song uh, which i'm sure you'll hear at the tail end of this but i don't know i mean are do we matter do we i mean jim carrey's really got me wondering now more so than i've ever had to in a world he said it with such confidence not that he's any sort of scientist and that i should really be taking his word for it but i don't know um once, once I guess we've determined that we do matter, though, how do we maintain awareness of ourselves? Like, right, staying woke. Woke means aware, right? Be aware. Stay aware. Keep an eye out. Don't close your mind up to ideologies just for the sake of closing your mind up to ideologies. Leave room for them because you might have to let them in at some point. They might make more sense down the line. It's good to just kind of draw in all the information now, but, I mean... Look, I'm not a success story by any means. I'm not Tony Robbins. I'm not a life coach. I'm not trying to get you guys to fall into some sort of weird, cultish, religion-esque type ideology that I might have. But I think it's important to be self-aware. And I like to think I'm very self-aware. Like, I'm I'm very aware of my flaws. I lean into them as hard as I can at times. Um, you know, I do my best to, to, to better myself in the ways that I think I can. But... I mean, just some things you want to maybe ask yourselves every day, because I really had to, I really struggled during the election with who I am and why I feel the way I feel about things, mostly because everywhere I went, I was being told that I was a racist, which is not something that I had ever been accustomed to. But I mean, I guess it, like the thought crossed my mind, like, am I? Like, I don't think I am, but I don't know. And then I kind of did like an introspective and I'd ask you guys to do the same thing here because you're going to get my personal analysis because I can only stay self-aware for one person. But think yourselves, like, how did you get here? How did you assemble the groups of thought and, and feelings that you have about things and, and why? Um, I laugh, like, because now that I look at it, 
I look back at it now, like, it's been, like, a year or two since I've had this sort of reawakening. I could have been a racist. I totally could have been a racist. Like, I grew up in a town of all white people, a lot of Italians, a lot of people, uh, I'm not gonna lie, I heard the N-word a bunch growing up, maybe even said it a few times, because I was young and stupid. Like, you know, it's just, it, it got to the point to where I literally needed to leave that environment and discover other things and other people before I was like, wait, this is not the way it's supposed to be by any means, and, uh, I don't know, like, I could have very easily to draw back on, on, if you guys listen to the 9-11 episode with JB, I could have been that kid who punched his friend in the face, like, I didn't go to school with JB, but at that time, young, vulnerable, listening to all the rhetoric, uh, easily impressionable, gullible, even, stupid, frankly, I was 14, like, you know, you're, you're not very bright then, and uh, if you're listening and you're 14, I'm sorry, but you've got a long ways to go before you join adulthood, um, frankly, I know people my age and I'm 30 that haven't quite achieved it. I might be one of them, uh, you know, um, but you know, I, I could have been that kid at 14 if I didn't know any better. And maybe I had a few Muslim kids in my, in my school that I didn't know very well. Well, I, weirdly enough, one of my best friends growing up is Muslim. So it's not like that's an issue for me in any way, shape or form. I treat everybody the, the same way. Uh, upon first meeting them, and then I give you a reason to determine whether or not I, I should trust you or devote any more of my time or emotion to you, but, you know, um, I could have been, I could have been a racist, I could have branched off from there and become one of these alt-right Nazi flag-waving lunatics, luckily I wasn't, I mean, I went to school um, in, like I said, an all-white, upper-middle-class suburbia, so, like, I wasn't exposed to a whole lot of diversity and culture, I went to freshman year of college. I went to St. John's University in Queens, New York. It's the most diverse county in the nation. I got to know just about everybody, and I really didn't have a whole lot of adjustment period. Um, I have friends from all walks of life now, and I'm very proud of that. Um, I, I don't say it to virtue signal. I say it because I really am proud of that. I could have just as easily stayed in my bubble in in New Jersey and stayed with my mostly Italian friends my whole life, but I don't want to do that. I actually like having a diversity of ideology and a diversity of culture and of thought and of perspective, and it's really cool to have people to lean on when it comes down to it. Uh, like, I, I've mentioned my friend last week. My friend is a dreamer. Like, I go to him and I talk about DACA all the time. Like, I'm very interested in his perspective on it. I don't mean to use him as an encyclopedia while he's struggling with things, but I feel like it's also important for him to hear somebody like my perspective on it. So getting back to more self-awareness, I guess, who who are you? Who am I? W like, what are we doing? What is our ultimate goal? Like, I like to try to think to myself, like, what kind of person do I want to be? Where, what am I doing to get closer to being that person? What am I willing to do to be that person? Am I willing to like sacrifice relationships with people that I know in order to just dive deep into music or podcasting and just completely like ignore certain sections of my friends? Like, no, I'm not. And I want all the success in the world. And those might be sacrifices that other people are willing to make that I'm not. But my connections with my friends, with my family, with my daughter, those are, those are really some of the things that I hold most near and dear in the world. And if we don't really matter at the end of the day, like Jim Carrey said, like those are the things I'm taking with me wherever I end up. Um, I'm not going to get to take the money with me. I'm not going to get to take the WWE network with me or my catalog now of podcasts that I've done. You know, I could do a lot more of these things, but I've, you know, we always joke on, on our network, on the Wrestling World Podcast Network, like family comes first. That's not even a joke. That's just a policy. That might be our only actual rule is that real life comes first. What is real? Is work real? 
Do I give a shit about my job, my bullshit paper pushing job at an insurance agency? No. If it came down to I've got to be at work today or I'm fired or I got to be somewhere or my friend's going to, you know, something bad's going to happen to my friend, I'm going to my friend a hundred times out of a hundred. Go find other jobs. You can't find other friends. Or you can, but not as good ones, you know, potentially. So, yeah. So ask yourself, like, who are you? Who do you want to be? What are you doing to better yourself? This is another thing that I try to do. And by no means am I, again, this tremendous success story, but I feel like this is a principle that you can't go wrong with. What did you do today to make yourself better than you were yesterday? I, for instance, watched a bunch of stuff and learned a bunch of information so that I could talk to you about this. When I'm done, I'm going to work out. I'm going to have a salad. Like, it's little shit, but it's there. And I'm going to do my best to continue to move forward on this track, be the best person that I am, gain more awesome connections with people like yourselves, people like CEO Hayes, who I cannot thank enough for allowing me to do this again. And, um, you know... I love these things, but as Jim Carrey told us, none of this matters. None of us matter. <laughs> this is not our world. So, you know, you, there's obviously a gambit of things that you could, you can, you could think about the, about existence, really, at the end of the day. And, uh, I guess just know, know, know about yours, because that's all you can really control and be the best person you could be by whatever metric you are measuring that. Does it mean being in the best shape? Does it mean donating to the most charities? Does it mean being the best employee, the best father, the best son, the best mother, best daughter, whatever the case may be? I don't know. And I can't tell you. But you could tell yourselves. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and, and have that conversation with yourself. Maybe while you're driving. Maybe while you're in the shower. It's good to get to know you. Because if you don't know you, how could you really know anybody else? And how could anyone else ever really know you? What I do know is that this has been the Awakened Soul Podcast, and I've, again, been honored to have been the host. I thank you so much if you've made it this far. Thank you again, CEO Hayes. Stay woke, people, and we will see you next week. Peace. So many MCs focusing on black people extermination. We keep it balanced with that knowledge of self-determination. It's hot, we be blowing the spots with conversations. Come on, let's smooth it out like soul cessation. We in the house like Japanese in Japan or Koreans in Korea. Had the Philly and Free Mumia with the Kooji Chagalia true. Singing and swinging and writing is fighting. But what they writing got is clashing like titans. It's not exciting, no question. Being a black man is demanding. The fire's in my eyes and the flames need fanning. The fire's in my eyes and the flames need fanning. The fire's in my my eyes and the flames need fanning with that one determination with that one determination with that one determination with that one determination things I say and do may not come clear through my words may not convey just what I'm feeling yes yes come on Yes, yes. Knowledge yourself is like life after death With that you never worry about your last breath Death comes, that's how I'm living It's the next stage, the flesh goes underground The book of life, flip a page Yo, they asking me how old we live in the same age I feel the rage of a million niggas locked inside a cage At exactly which point do you start to realize That life without knowledge is death in disguise That's why knowledge yourself is like life after death Apply it to your life, let destiny manifest Different days, same confusion We gonna take this hip-hop shit and keep it Moving, shed a little light. Now y'all blooming like a flower with the power of the evident. Voices and drums, original instruments in the flesh, presently presenting my representation with that one. Determination with that one. Determination with that one. Determination with that one.
determination with that one. Determination.